You are now listening to the Hunter's Advantage Podcast. Christian Babcock, the host of the Hunter's Advantage podcast. And what we do on the podcast is we talk to disruptive companies in the outdoor industry, talk about innovative hunting solutions that are changing the landscape, as well as offer you tips and strategy for more successful hunts. All in all, I just want to help you become a better hunter by providing you with high quality knowledge and information that you can trust. Stay tuned. Christian Babcock here of the Hunter's Advantage podcast. Today in episode 73, we sit down with Pat Lane for an in-person episode. We talk about South Texas hunting cultures, the large ranches in Texas. We talk about some of his outlaw hunting stories. We discuss his relationship with Charles Beatty, the infamous Prince of Poachers. And we discuss some of his new stories in his book, Before the Stories Are Lost. If you guys are enjoying the content from the channel, Make sure to subscribe and turn the bell notifications on because we have a lot more podcast, hunting videos, and reviews coming your way. Let's get into the episode. All right, everybody. Thanks for joining us again for Hunter's Advantage Podcast, episode number 73. Today, we're joined by Pat Lane. We've been talking for about an hour, but we're finally on the podcast. Thanks for jumping on with me. I appreciate it very much, Chris. You know, been looking forward to this. Yeah, absolutely. So you were a new acclaimed author. You just wrote a book. I think Charlie's talked about the book oh, in, yeah. in detail or a little bit of detail, but just kind of a 10,000 foot level. What's the, what's the book about for people that are? Well, like I said, the stories are about my great uncle Zenas who got, who came there in 1906. And uh, of course they hunted any way they could back then. And all those stories that I've learned from him and then the guys before me, I just wanted to write them down. Because some of them, I mean, you can't make that stuff up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, those guys were crazy. And, uh, but that was a way of life. So that's what I wanted to do. And then I, and I wanted to be honest. I, I wanted to give my buddy Charlie some validation. And there's a lot of people read that book of his and said, man, it ain't no way. Well, partner. I was there. I was getting after action reports. I know, <laughs> you know, at least for that, his first five years, because see, I quit in 1983. And then, you know, he had that period where he got married and he straightened his act up and everything. And he went to Mexico and was gone for three years and stuff and come back. And then he started all over again. But, uh, but we never, I never went in there with him. You know, I, I couldn't do it. My, my bunch were meat hunters, you know, and uh, leaving the meat in the field was, I wasn't going to get it, you know. Yeah. And that's just the way I, that's just the way I grew up. And so Charlie and I, we, you know, I never went back in that Kennedy with him. I could have gone every dang time if I wanted to, but I just couldn't get past that, you know. And, uh, but we never had a crossword about it. I knew what he was doing, you know. And it was kind of good for me because he's plumb over there on that Kennedy, <laughs> I knew that time east over there was empty. There wasn't anybody over there. And I kept my mouth shut. I didn't talk, you know. And that's the only way you, you're going to get away with it. You know, you can't be bragging about that stuff. But I want everybody to know that, man, I do not recommend this at all. I mean, this was a long, long time ago. It's a half a hundred years ago 
when I landed in that country at 18 years old. And uh, I said it was a way of life then, and back then it was just a game. A fine was less than $100, you know, and it, it was just the way we got our meat. And there's nothing around you but those great big ranches, you know. You're just right there in the middle of it. So since there was no public land, we kind of figured that was our public land. We went and got our meat out there. And uh, the posse of guys that I run with, all older than me, my, you know, my father, my, my stepdaddy and, and his buddies, Ellis Mayfield, oh, my gosh, uh, crotchiest, meanest little old man you ever saw in your life, half-breed Indian, and God knows how many deer he's killed. He never could sus- <laughs> satisfy that bloodlust he had. Oh, it was something else. But uh, that's who I learned from. I mean, they were the best. I think I wrote in the book, I said they were uh, tenured road hunting professors. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and I, I road hunted a lot with them because they're, they, they're too old. They couldn't go jump the fence and do what I could do anymore. And, but that's where, I got my, that's where I got my education. Yeah. I learned an awful lot from them, you know. In the, so on the back of the book, I think you say the only way you know how to tell a story is from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think a lot of people got a view of kind of the culture and what's kind of going on at this time from Charlie's book. But what was the beginning of these giant ranches in South Texas, the power of them, the politicalness of them? What? Tell me about the beginning of all of those. Okay. Well, like I said, it, you know, in the 18th century, it was... It was Spanish. I mean, that's all Spanish land grant. You know, Spain had been over Mexico for two or three hundred years. And then in 1822, or 1821, that's when they, the Mexicans finally beat them out and uh, ran the Spanish out. And see, those guys that were in Texas, and some of them had land on both sides of the river. Man, you talk about being alienated. They had nobody. You know, I mean, who just... They were on property that either belonged to people that just whipped them, or we got these newcomers coming in trying to take their other stuff, you know. And that's what happened. It was just wide open, and the fact that it was completely lawless. There was no law down there below the Nueces River, not until 1874, when uh, they sent Leander McNally and the Texas Rangers down there. And, and I kind of allude to it in the book, you know. I mean, who'd they work for? <laughs> They were working for the King Ranch and those other big ranchers. There's nobody else down there. And uh, there's places all over hidden out there. Christian, I could take you to a ranch about 20 miles outside of Falfurious. We call it Creek Road. It dead ends in the Mills Bennett. And this ranch just changed hands. And it's Los Compadres, what it used to be. I don't know what they call it now. But in that ranch... There's five crips, mother, father, three children, above ground, crips. I mean, these people had a way with all, and this was happened all these years ago. It says, all killed by Texas Rangers. The whole family was wiped out. And if you listen to the people, Hispanic people down there and telling their stories, that's what it was. It was just taken from them. It's no different than any other place in the world. The strong took it from the weak. There was no law. These guys came in there. They had a plan. And, uh, and of course, it was Captain King, Mifflin Kennedy. They didn't get hooked up until in Florida. 
And uh, that's when they decided they was going to go to Texas. And that was all about the same time that we had the Mexican-American War. Well, that was a 48, 47. They're still fighting us. And uh, it was just an opportunity there for the taking. And, and that's what they did. History books will tell you they paid two cents an acre for that land. <laughs> well, Christian, they had penny candy back then. Those people had been there for four generations, for a hundred years, and you're telling me they took two pieces of candy for every acre they had? I don't believe it. It's been sanitized. But they said the, the strong took it, and that was them. But uh, there was another partner, too. See, there was another partner down there in Brownsville, and he was coordinating all that shipping and stuff. Dude, they were running Confederate cotton into Mexico to help support the you know, the Civil War and stuff like that. And uh, it just was, it was wide open. Those people sitting on that land, you know, they didn't have nobody to turn to. You know, Spain's across the ocean. They can't help them. Mexico didn't want to help them, you know. And Texas was getting annexed by the United States. You know, we lost our republic. And it was just chaos, you know. And whoever was the strongest ended up with it. Yeah. But the, the difference between those two men was, was, was incredible. Because, you know, Captain King, they said he was sold in, as a slave when he was nine years old in New York City. Indentured servitude, they called it back then. To a jeweler in Manhattan. And he was there for two years until he jumped ship. And he got on a steamship and he, man, he, he hooked him. Well, he got caught on that ship. And those two captains took a kind of took a liking to him. And he spent the rest of his life on that dang steamships, plowing up those rivers in Alabama and Florida and stuff, you know, moving material, whatever he could, except for eight months. And that one captain sent him to Connecticut to his home, and he got eight months of formal education. That's all Captain King had. So you want to call him an entrepreneur? That's getting, that's getting a little bit out there, okay? But now, Captain Kennedy, on the other side, completely different. The man was born a Quaker in Pennsylvania. He went to college. He taught school before he got into maritime business. But that's as good a partnership you could have had. One was the brains and one was the brawn. I asked the Texas State Historical Society for pictures. Where I could use them in my book, so oh, no, you can't use them copyrighted. Well, that gun that aggravates me. You can tell me I can't do something, because I'll stay up all night some way to figure out how I can. And I found me a character artist. And I showed him a picture of Cap King. I said, use that face and just make him look like a pirate. And that's the picture in the book. Yeah. And then on, on Mifflin Kennedy, I said, just put Einstein's hair on him, because he was the brains. <laughs> And to prove that, you know, shortly after, you know, the turn of the 20th century, you know, by the 1900s, and people were land poor. You know, they couldn't pay the taxes on the freaking land, you know, and they had so much. And uh, if it hadn't been for Humble Oil, come in and found, they'd have cut that place up and sold it piecemeal years and years ago because they couldn't cover the taxes, but not Mifflin Kennedy. Captain King died in 1885. Mifflin Kennedy died in 1895. 
10 years later, and he left his family, his heirs, that 440,000-acre ranch, and $50 million in 1895. Now, you imagine that, $50 million in 1895. That's equivalent to $1.67 billion today. He left that to his heirs. That's right. His wife, Petra. That's a great story, all of that history, too. Like I was telling you, he came down there. He was a Quaker, but he converted to Catholicism because you had to be Catholic to own land in Texas back then when Mexico was in control over it. You know, I mean, look at all the people that fought in the, in the Alamo and stuff like it's all, all of them. David Crockett, not, I mean, uh, Jim Bowie, he, he converted to Catholicism where he could own land. Stephen F. Austin, all those guys did. And uh, he followed suit, but that man was a businessman, and he knew. There was nobody going to get rich raising cattle. But now moving around, that's a pretty good idea. And he, he built some first railroads. And right before he died, he signed the line of credit for the Aransas-San uh, Antonio Railway System, 500 miles, and he wrote the check. He owned that thing. That's a money-making dude. Now, he was, he was a businessman. But um, there's lots of stories and history about his his wife and stuff beforehand, you know, because her father, well, he was the governor of Mexico. I mean, he's all all of Texas. That was all underneath him. And she was married to a lieutenant in the army. And they had eight children. And then he got himself murdered. And there's all kinds of rumors. There's no proof. But there's all kinds of rumors that Mifflin Kennedy was behind that. But then he married her. And Petra, dead of all, was a beautiful woman. And they had six more kids. And uh, so, yeah, there was, it was all that, you know. But they've all had terrible things happen in their life, you know. Captain Mifflin Kennedy's oldest son, he was shot dead in Mexico. He was shot by a deputy sheriff he was sparking his estranged wife and it cost him his life they had to go to mexico to get his body mifflin kennedy watched his his adopted son get hung in mexico you know and we talked about captain king's boy he died of pneumonia they said at 19. Uh, it was a rough time yeah it was a rough place after posting a bunch of YouTube videos and having the interviews with Charlie's and everything up, I can already tell what people are going to ask and what people are going to say about these stories. Where did you, where have you done research or is most of this stuff like anecdotal from people who lived during this time? Is it passed on through that? Right. How there, do you, how do you it, know these things? That, that's the first thing people are going to say. And that's what I put right in the front of that book. That was the Hornsby's and the Culpeppers came from LaGrange, Georgia and moved there in 1906. Well, great uncle Zanus and grandpa Horton's new people have been there since the Civil War on both sides of the river. And thing about them, and I know you're, you know, you're strong in your faith. <laughs> These men were church of God. And you know what those people are like. Bubba, I mean, a woman got too much rouge on in church, that preacher's gonna tell her, <laughs> you know, go wash your face, you know. So telling a lie, They'd go to a drawer and get a butter knife, cut their tongue out first before they'd do that. And that's where I got them. They told me the stories. That's verbal history. 
It, the, the real history's been sanitized. But the people that, that live down there, and generations after generations, they know it's the truth. Like I said, I go down there to see my own mama. <laughs> That's going to be 100 this year. And uh, yeah, they're all kind of patting me on the back. Yeah, you finally told a story, Pat. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, I just wanted to tell the truth. Just get it out there. And uh, but like I said, it's not picking on anybody or anything like that. It's just, let's just tell the truth. Yeah, my daddy taught me one thing. I thought he invented that. He said, you know, anybody, nobody's got a good enough memory to be a successful liar. I thought, man, that daddy might smart. You know, found out he stole that from Mark Twain. But, you know, but I liked it anyway. I mean, it's the truth. I don't know how they, people telling stories and stuff, and you can't ever repeat it. But no, I've got that word of mouth, you know, from those men, other men like them there that have been there. I've always been, a, you know, interested in, in senior citizens because they know things. Oh, I want to sit down and probe them and talk to them. And, and that they, they tell, they're told a lot of the stories to me, you know. I mean, I, like I said, you're not going to find it in a history book because it's been, it's been sanitized. But uh, those people down there know it's the truth. <laughs> the ones that are old enough to remember. The thing is, we're about all dying off. You know, there's just not many of us left. And I don't plan on my book being a, a history book, but I know it's in two libraries already in South Texas. <laughs> a customer, <laughs> Philip Storm, put them in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was, it was pretty good. He said, yeah, I'm going to give one to the library in Alice. And I said, oh my gosh. <laughs> but, uh, I had a lot of fun writing that book, but I knew if I didn't, lay out a little bit of history, how that stuff all came about. It, it just, it, you know, it doesn't make a lot of sense, you know. But it was like any other place. It was just wide open, you know, and it was there for the taking. And those two guys got the biggest share of the lion's share of the property before the turn of the century. And then it got so bad for those folks after that, they were selling that land off pretty cheap. Here's, here's a perfect example. Uh, when they sent Captain Leander McNally below the Nueces River, said, you know, stop all that thieving and stuff going on down there, you know. He basically reported King Ranch gets all was there, you know. <clears throat> he had a guy with him. And they said he was McNally's bulldog. Well, that's old man Armstrong. He a Texas Ranger. The Armstrong Ranch. That's a famous place, buddy. That's Republican Mecca. I mean, that's where, oh, uh, what was his name? Uh, uh, Dick Cheney shot his, his buddy uh, bird hunting, remember? They had an accident, you know? Yeah. That was on that Armstrong ranch. Well, that, that bulldog Armstrong that was under McNally, he's the man that captured John Wesley Harding. Yeah, they captured him. He got $4,000. For, you know, John Wesley Harding escaped, but he got to keep the money, and that's how he bought that ranch. And then it's still there today. Like I said, it's Republican Mecca, you know, right across from the Norris. It's, uh, it's, it's part of that oak country that Charlie always talks about that runs, that strip runs all the way across, you know, now plumb past the Balawarthi, almost to Heavenville. There's just, just a string of oaks all the way through that country. Yeah. Where they came from, but that's where they are, you know. So I think it's interesting you you talk you alluded to it a little bit about the Kennedy and the King and being 
bought for two cents, um, two cents an acre, which is just crazy to even think about. Um, is that sort of you, you? You know, you said about the corruption. You you assume that there's something going on there and why that land was sold so cheap. But is that part of the justification that outlaw hunters or poachers used to hunt those properties because they were obtained in what they thought was an unethical way in the first place? That, that's, that's an excellent question, Christian. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, we did not have much respect for them. Why, why is that? Because we know how they, they actually got that land. You know, there's stories of them going to a, a man that maybe had four or 5,000 acres. So we're going to make you a deal. You know, we're going to give you $5 an acre. Well, they never heard $5 an acre. Five thousand. We'll give you twenty-five thousand dollars cash. God, man, that was like a million dollars. And you guys, you bet. I'm here by myself. I ain't got no family. You can have it. Sign the deed. Pay him the money. That night, come back. Pow! Shot him in the head. Got the paperwork. Got the money back. Then he went and knocked on the neighbor's door and did the same thing. Pretty soon, people just started running, and they just left it. You know, like I said, they didn't have anybody to support them. There was no law down there. And those Texas Rangers were there for the ranches because that's all that's all was there. They didn't consider them to be part of the state. They were isolated, left over from a time that was, you know, when Spain owned it all. So, no, we didn't have a lot of respect for them, you know, a ranch like that. We figured, you know, it always said in the, in the Constitution of Texas, the Republic, when we were Republic, said the flora and the fauna of the state of Texas belonged to the citizens. It never once said it belongs to the landowner. Well, but see, they changed all that in 1983. And that's when I quit. I saw the handwriting on the wall. Uh, and then they changed that law. It said, no, wherever that deer is standing, that belongs to that landowner. Well, that's a pretty good source of revenue for them now. You know, and uh, that's that was a lot of reasons. We yeah, we just we just figured they were ours. It wasn't like we were getting theirs. Those were our deer. They just was on their property, <laughs> and we wanted something to eat. We're gonna go get one of them. Yeah. And uh, but it it just became a game too. And believe me, those guys enjoyed chasing us too. <laughs> they really did. I mean, you got King Ranch security, and then the game wardens and stuff, and and uh, but it just there wasn't any teeth in it. But in 1983, they changed that. Because prior to that, so it was 257 counties, I think, in Texas, 151 of them said game law violations. Well, that, that's a county affair. Austin, y'all just go away. We'll take care of this ourselves. You know? You've been a bad boy. That'd be 100 bucks. Now, don't do that anymore. Okay. And that's what it was. Well, they put teeth in it in 83. And that's when they started bumping it up, bumping it up. See, I quit. Oh, Charlie, he stayed at 98. Well, by then, it was got plum got serious. They about made it a felony, and now it is a felony. I mean, they put you in prison for what we used to do for fun, just to go out and get some meat. And uh, doesn't make a lot of sense, does it, Christian? Once again, throwaway logics, <laughs> reasoning. <laughs> you follow the money. Those ranches, they were flush with petroleum money. They had all the money they want. But the cattle business wasn't worth a flip. And it just continually go down. And rather than change, because that's so much of their heritage, 
you know, that, that red Santa Gertrudis, you know, boy, that's King Ranch, you know, we invented that thing. Well, they have pickups about it. It's a whole cultural thing about the King Ranch, about ranching. The thing is, that running W now, it stands for Wall Street. It ain't got nothing to do with ranching anymore because they're not ranching. I mean, look what they charge to kill one of those deer. You go out there and kill one deer, that that same money, you could buy 10 head of steers. And it sure ain't dollar for dollar on the meat there. You know, it's a sport. It's a people wanting to hunt, you know, and... And they're wanting to kill a big one. And they uh, just got another source of income coming in right there. And that's that's what they do. The the Sanger Trudis here, they've got big people. You know, Jerry Jones, I think he's got 100,000 acres in there. Uh, Peter Holt owns the Spurs, and he's got 50. Uh, you know, they, there's big money people in there, you know, hunting that. And, but most... Most of the guys that were doing anything, there was nobody doing what Charlie was doing. Most of those guys are road hunting, you know, or like me. You know, I, when I could go by myself, I didn't have old timer with me. <laughs> I jumped that fence in the morning, you know, and I, I rattled me up a deer and kill him, and then I'd spend the day boning him out, hiding in the shade, get me a nap and everything, and it got dark, I'd carry that meat out, you know. It just got to be a game, you know. And like I said, we just didn't want to get caught. You know, it wasn't the money, it wasn't that much money, and you know, and you wouldn't go to jail for it. Yeah. But it was just, uh, it's just your pride, you know, wanting to. So you, uh, in the book, you talked about you take it way back from where Charlie took it. He's talking about the, I think the main period is the seventies, eighties, and nineties that Charlie's talking mm-hmm. about, mm-hmm. and you take it all the way back to like nineteen ten. Or is in the book. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that's what, first one was Carlisle Knoll. Yeah, what's the what do you know about the first interaction with people starting to hunt these ranches? Because you you talk about the golden rule in the book is that no meat left behind, which is the difference between and one of the reasons I think someone everyone gets so angry at Charlie because he's a trophy hunter, mm-hmm. he does it for the sport. And you guys talk about the meat and everything, but what is in 1910, what is this relationship between outlaws and poachers and the ranch? And kind of, kind of, how did all that get started? Is it just like we don't have any public land around here, and we're hunters, natural born, and we're going to continue to hunt one way or the other? People back then had to eat. There's no money. There was no money down there until that oil came about. You know, and the oil didn't get there till after 1915. Yeah, those men just they were going to go get some meat to eat. They didn't care what that fence was all about, you know. That first story I talk about is Carlisle Knoll. That, you know, he was another one. He was half some kind of Indian. I don't know what he was, but he was an ornery fella, you know. And they decided they was going to make an example out of him. And they caught him coming out with a summer buck on his shoulder. Now, my man's 70 years old. He's carrying a dang buck. He's pretty tough, you know. And they ended up putting him in jail and make an example out of him, and that's when it did. I tell all the book, but, you know, he told him, he said, Bubby, you can't keep me in here forever for killing a deer. And when I get out, I'll kill every Santa Gertrudis bull within rifle shot of the road. And believe me, even on into the 20s, 30s, 40s, there's a gentleman I know real well. His name is Lavosier Durham, and I'm going to help him with his book. And you want to talk about something exactly opposite? Lavosier was born on the Norris Division 
of the King Ranch 78 years ago. His father was the foreman of that ranch for almost 50 years. His grandfather was hired by Captain King. He's been with them all this time. We were talking just the other day, and he said, I can remember Dad telling him that, you know, they'd catch somebody hunting. He said, well, I'll scare them a little bit, run them off, but don't make them too mad. They'll come back and kill a horse or shoot a cow, something of some value. And that's why I wanted to put that as a first hunting story, because that's what Robert Justice Clayburg Jr. told that sheriff. He said, Mr., one of my bulls is worth more than a whole ranch full of deer. Give the old man his deer back and leave him alone. You know, <laughs> he'll, kill my, he'll kill my bulls, you know. And that was the mentality, you know. And people were just, you know, we're going to get some meat. They pretty much left them, left them alone, you know. And, uh, but they, if they caught you in there, it's a different story. If they caught you in there, then you were up to whatever they wanted to. And I tell that story, you know, about El Sal's. That means the sauce. And uh, that's down there by Port Mansfield, 1936. Man and his son, they went in there to get some meat, never came out. And the citizens around there were convinced that the, you know, King Ranch fence riders killed him. And they were bad, a mob. Boy, they were, they were going in there. They're going to burn the ranch house down. I mean, they were, you know. And that, the governor of the state actually sent Texas Rangers down there to ferret the whole thing out, but then never did find anything. And they never did find those, those men, you know, the, the father and son. Yeah. But now you think about that, too. When was this? It was 1936. What was happening in 1936? We're in that dead middle of the Depression and nobody had nothing. And that's all those people were doing, trying to get some meat to eat, you know. Yeah, it's just a little bit overboard. When I got there in 72, they kind of put off, the Claybergs put off an air like they were royalty, you know. And uh, of course, they're really, old man Bob Clayberg had passed. This fellow I just told you about, LaVorger, he dug the grave for Bob Clayberg by hand. Oh, he thought the world of that man. But then you had those two about my time. Well, it was B. Johnson and Bobby Shelton. And between the two of them, they owned a quarter of it. But the corporation was being formed, and they were getting it, you know, and they wanted to get nobody on top of that ranch to somebody dislike them. And so those guys got paid off. And they sent... Uh, Bobby Shelton and B. Johnson packing with $250 million apiece in the early 70s. Quarter of a billion dollars. Bobby Shelton bought uh, four ranches up around Kerrville and then 175,000 acres in Bozeman, Montana. You know who owns that ranch now? Who's that? Ted Turner. <laughs> it's Dances with Wolves. No interior fencing, no nothing, just nothing but buffalo. Yeah, it was kind of neat, but they both of them died young, way before the time, had alcohol problems and stuff like that. And I was listening to LaVosier talking about that. He said, M Mr. Bob was trying his best to raise those kids, but they didn't have any parents. You see, they're, they're half-brothers. There was a Clayburg girl, and she 
married or got pregnant by a cowboy. And that's where B. Johnson came from. Well, then that cowboy got himself killed. And how, nobody knows. There's no records of it, but he got himself killed. And she remarried a doctor from Corpus, Shelton. And then she had Bobby Shelton. Well, then those two got killed in a car wreck. And yeah, those two little boys running around that King Ranch and they're never been told no, you know, and hell, there's checks in the checkbook. They, we still got to have money. <laughs> there's still checks, you know. <laughs> and they never had, knew how to manage money or do anything. And they just pssed all off. It's kind of sad. My, uh, my sister's uh, family, uh, she married into the Storms. Her father-in-law used to go to that ranch up there every year. And uh, Bobby Shelton helped him with his haying operation and stuff like that. He even stayed on a little bit when Ted Turner took over. After you know, he had he bought it out. I my nephews have been up there. I never have. But they say it's quite quite the place. Who did you learn this from? I've read the book, so I understand this. But I want to give the listener a little bit of a sneak peek into how this culture of just going and getting meat, treating the king, the Kennedy, the East, all like a grocery store. Where did you learn that and? Kind of how was that passed along to each each generation? That was that was from my stepdaddy Wayne. Uh, like I said, I come back from California. I was 18 years old, and I was in a bad way. I mean, I was cut from the appetite, and I had 117 and some stitches in me. And I laid on my mother's couch for about two months, trying to heal up. They should have gave me some blood out in California, and they didn't. But every day, Wayne come over. And they weren't married yet, you know. And I just took a liking to this guy. Well, he liked to hunt and fish. Good grief, man. And that's what we talk about, you know. And, and I got to knowing all those guys that I was going to hunt with someday, sitting there on that couch, him telling me those stories. You know, well, that's what we do. do. Man, I got to do this. I'm going to do this. Because <laughs> I was one of those kids that I was never afraid of nothing. You know, I, I just I want to go give it a try, you know. So it, it was Wayne, you know. But then... His uncle, Zenas, you know, guy, he became my Daniel Boone because I heard so many stories about him. Man, when I finally got to meet Zenas for the first time, man, I thought I was in the presence of something, you know, because this guy had done it. I have, out of all the deer I have seen in my life, that man had the best collect, the 10 heads that he kept in his house. I've never seen anything like it. There's not even close you got to understand, he started hunting about 19, yeah, about 1912. He's got an eight point. That thing looks like an elk. It's that heavy all the way through. And I, he got one too. I, I used to call it the hand deer. The G3 comes up, and dude, the end of it, just like a hand. With the hook, the thumb coming back. There's five hickeys coming off that one time. Just massive animals. And he killed them all right back there and jumping off that over the canalis fence and into the but he same way, he'd go in, you know, in the morning, dark, you know, and leaving dark. You know. He didn't spend the night. Not like Charlie. <laughs> Not like Charlie. None of us did that. And so but we just stood back and watched. When when I got to knowing him and I knew what he was doing, I just was going, Dow, Bo. <laughs> Just, just go on and see what you can do, you know. And, uh, and he showed me an awful lot, but I just never would go with him, you know. Now, we hunted a lot of places together. Bird hunted, you know, fished. 
We, boy, we had some fishing. Oh, we had a good time, you know. But I was drawn to him because of his, his talent, his art. You know, he's just like I said, he's the best taxidermist I've ever seen. When I was a little kid, I was born in West Texas, a little town outside of Lubbock, called Level End. Mama loves to tell the story. It says, the only store in town, they'd have to worry about me. I was four years old. We walk in that hardware store, and they just turned me loose. Because on one side of that thing was lined up with nothing but North American shoulder mounts. Elk, you know, moose, everything. Other side was Africa, you know. But at the back of that place, in a big glass box about 14 foot tall, was a polar bear standing. And when they were ready to go, they'd find me. <laughs> get my mouth open. I'd be right there looking at that polar bear, you know. So ever since I was a little bitty kid... I just love that stuff. I love taxidermy, and, you know, I always thought I wanted to do it, you know. I ain't got no talent. <laughs> and then I met Charlie, you know, and that's what drew me to him. Because he's an amazing artist, just amazing, you know. He could have done anything he wanted. But I like him in that medium in, in taxidermy. Yeah. He's, he's just he's very good. He's given me a lot more than I've ever given him. Yeah. That's for sure. I mean, I think it's it's interesting. I've got a lot of uh, I've I've noticed when I talk to older folks, you and Charlie in particular, and even some people that I know back at home, they talk about poaching through a different lens than how we view it today. Uh, we view it today almost as like like this massive travesty against humanity or, or some and. And I'm I agree it, it it should probably be uh, looked at in that way. But why do you think why do you think back in the day it wasn't it wasn't looked at it this way? Because I want to set it up for the viewer who's grown up with the trail cams, the cell cams, the all all these sorts of things. How why was it looked at this different way? You guys almost viewed it through a lens of how a Native American would view like a white man coming and stealing their land, like. I, I'm going to do whatever I want. Oh, yeah. Well, like I said, we, you know, we were, we're Texans. We're, yeah. We believed in the Republic. It said it was ours. It wasn't theirs. But it's also, you're, you're a lot younger than me. I'm 67 years old. Yeah. And see, in 1983, when they passed the Wildlife Conservation Act, they did something else at the same time. And they were smart. And what they were doing, they were controlling the narrative. You ever heard that today? Oh, yeah. 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 Well, that's what they did with Operation Game Thief. They controlled the narrative. They blew it out on the airways. They had billboard signs. Oh, you, them outlaw hunters, call them and turn them in. We'll pay you money. Well, that's what they were doing, is they were controlling the narrative. Did those outlaws riding it? little bitty road around 400,000 acres. You think they were hurting a deer population? There's more deer down there now than there ever was. It wasn't that. They couldn't grow cattle, and they needed another source of income. Follow the money. And that's why they turned, they turned the whole world against us. You know, and, and all we were were meat hunters. We were just like our dadgum families were 200 years ago. We just went out to go get some meat. And they, they turned it into a crime of century because, like I said, one deer is worth 10 cows. You know, and when you're trying to pay taxes and stuff, I guess it's, that, 
That's one way to pay them, you know. Yeah. But that happened all the same time. Operation Game Thief, when they passed out, they came out with that. It was smart. They had this thing figured out. And so most of the people that are left, except us old guys, like y'all, you know, you grew up knowing that, I mean, that's against the law. What are they doing that stuff for? Well, it really wasn't. It really wasn't until 1983. It was just a dang game, you know. And I mean, August Timmerman lived right across the street from my mother and dad. He's King Ranch Security, Encino Division. I ever, he'd be looking at the door at me. And he, he's always peering at me. But he, uh, like I said, they wanted to catch me, you know. But we were just meat hunting. Worse, we believe me, we we're gonna kill the biggest one we could find. Yeah. You know, I mean, we if the deer wasn't, you know, if he wasn't twenty inches and ten points or better, we we're gonna shoot that deer. Just let him go, you know, because there's the bigger ones out there. You know, kind of had you pick. In those days, in the early seventies, they really wasn't hardly allowing anybody to hunt. In the Kennedy, nobody hunted. Just nobody hunted that, or the East. And uh, but that stuff just didn't get touched. Because Tom wouldn't permit it. He wouldn't permit anybody killing deer. And f for that's the biggest secret in South Texas how he ended up with all the surface rights over the Kennedy. Because you everybody's heard Charlie telling him stories about them getting the helicopters up on him and chasing him down. You know, with Tom East. Well, Sarita Kennedy East is not his mother. <laughs> There is no line of kinship between them. She married a man, his name was Alexander East, who was a fruit peddler. Yeah, he was had wagon train coming up out of the valley, going to Corpus and Aransas Pass. And there wasn't no 77 then. You look at my map, so he went right through that Kennedy Ranch. Well, obviously, that's where he met Sarita Kennedy. And they, and they got married. My... Grandfather and my, and my grand-uncle Zenas, they referred to the man as Happy. Everybody called him Happy East. Yeah, he went from being a fruit peddler to a <laughs> very wealthy man. I'd make me pretty happy, too, yeah. you know. But there's no kinship there. None. And I, if it's the biggest secret in that country, but they are, that is not his, he's, they're not related. Not claimed, anyway. Because, like I said, his dad was Tom T. Sr., who married a Clayburg girl in 1915. And that's how he acquired all that land there. So was there ever a time where permission was asked for these people to hunt? Like, have you ever heard of people asking the owner of the Kennedy and the King and the East? I mean, I'm sure you. there has to have been some time where this all started where there's a denial of, no, you can't hunt. Because I've talked to people in... You know, talking about even in the '80s of, of my uncle, of you could go hunt anywhere you wanted. All you got to do was let the guy know. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a "Can I hunt?" It's "I'm going to be in here. Don't shoot me. I'm going to be in this place." And that's kind of just how it was. Was that how it was? Not there? on those big ranches. Why is that? It was theirs. They were royalty. They were landowners. They were massive landowners. You know, you stay off my property. You know, King by God Ranch. You know. So the locals just you, know, you just went about business like like we always did, you know. Meat's getting low in the freezer. Well, let's go get one. You know, we just go get us one. You know? 
There but wasn't the, any other properties to hunt. Like no one else was a landowner in those areas. Oh yeah, but you, you gotta get west of two eighty one and all those little places and stuff out there. People go down there and lease them things and never see a deer. And most of them been shot out. You find foot tracks and look at them closer. They're goats. They're not dead gun deer. <laughs> you know, they were bad about baiting a place before they lease it. Yeah. It's just, it was, you know, you weren't going to kill a quality of deer that you got there, but you got this massive ranch. It's just, you know, those deer grew up and died, never saw a person, you know? And, uh, nah, it just, it was there. It was just there, and that's what we did, you know? And, and Wayne and them guys, you know, they, they'd been doing it forever. And, uh, but that's how they lived, you know, that's how they ate. And, uh, now, Grandpa Hornsby, he didn't much appreciate that, you know? Of course, Uncle Zenas, he was out all too. You know, he jumped that fence. See, he was a tax dermist too. And uh, one of the many things that he did. But uh, it was just, um, it was just different time, man. It, it, the mindset we have today, it just wasn't there then. You know, I just, you think about that, you know, it's, there's just huge ranches and people live there trying to make a living around there someplace. And, you know, you kill yeah. something, you know? I think I think it's important to recognize too that as humans we're always gonna butt right up to what's legal, right? And even go over that line and it's just a constant battle of risk versus reward. Right? Like if, if we made it where it was a hundred dollar fine to sell heroin today, everybody would start selling it. Mm -hmm. I'll pay the hundred bucks, you know, because mm -hmm. the the reward is so high and the risk is so low. Mm -hmm. And that's how I've seen you talk about it. That's how I've seen Charlie talk about it. I mean, think about if we reverted to those laws now. If we said, if you poach a deer, you're going to get a hundred dollar fine. Mm -hmm. You'd see guns hanging out the window. Oh yeah, on every public piece. On oh yeah. Ev I mean, on everything. Mm -hmm. And it's just so hard to fathom that as someone that's grown up. You're talking about all these laws have been in place a decade or two decades before I was even born. Born, exactly. And I just think it's it's not it's not realistic to think as as humans we're not going to if the, if the reward is high and the risk is so low that we're not going to do those things. I think that's kind of ridiculous for people to think about. If I tell you what, when I was a young man, teenager, seventies, a man did what he thought he was big enough to get away with. I mean, that's just the way it was. And I'll tell you another thing. Man didn't walk up to another man and give him his opinion about what he was doing and maybe tell him he shouldn't be doing that. Partner, that's the best way I know of get knocked on your butt. I mean, they hit you right there for that. Been, and when I was a young man, I seen that happen. Yo boy on the ground, he go, you know, mister, I was out of line, and I want to apologize to you, and he'd stick his hand out and shake his hand. And I said, I, I should have kept my mouth shut and, and walk away, and that was all it was said. Well, see, the world hasn't changed, Christian, the people have. Now they call that felony assault. You can't even correct unwanted behavior. <laughs> and, and it was hard on me in the 70s because, Bubba, I kind of liked to scrap, you yeah. know. <laughs> I, I enjoyed it. Man likes to do what he was good at. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the people, people are changing yeah, a lot, you know. And, and they have to. There's more of us. And what we did, you couldn't do it now. It's just totally impossible. And I don't recommend anybody ever go out there and try to do that because you're going to get in bad trouble. 
But think about it. And said, there were no cell phones. There was, there, there was no technology like that. But the only thing the ranch would do is put a plane up high ab above uh, the Santa Gertrudis so they could watch four roads. They could see somebody with spotlight or something. And then radio down to the game warden or ranch security and go get after them. That's about all you had. Now, man, they got motion sensors. They got night vision goggles. They got whatever an outlaw could think of to use. Guess what? Those landlords, they got them too. It's just over with. And, and, and I, I'm, I'm really, I'm glad. I mean, I was fortunate that I got a decade of it. And I had a time of my life. And <laughs> I'll never forget it as long as I live. And I even got to write some stories about it, you know, kind of keep my little legacy. But it was a completely different time. You, there's, not a, there's too much traffic on the road now to hunt from the road. And, and the way I like to hunt, you know, jumping in now, ooh, it, that's spooky. Because I'm telling you, they've got motion sensors and everything else. And look what's going on in that country right now, you know, with all these illegals coming across I mean, my mama lives in Foul Furious. There's tractor trailers full of dead bodies in them right now that they found out there. Oh, they're finding them all the time. It's tough country. I mean, they run out of water, they get dehydrated, and they just die right there, you know. So all those technology and stuff that's available today, they're using it. Believe me, they're using it. That guy ain't got a chance to do what we were doing back then, you know. Yeah. Yeah. No, I said, just let it, that's what I said in my opening. I said, just let it go, man, please. <laughs> it was fun. I want to tell you about it, you know. Uh, it wasn't like we meant ill content or, you know, it just like it was all right. I'm, I'm going to go get something to eat, you know, get me some meat, you know. Yeah. But like I said, we wanted to kill the biggest one we could kill too, you know. <laughs> that was a, but you had a good choice there. There was a lot, you know, it was deer live four and a half, five and a half, six and a half years, you know, they're don't get shot at. You know? Yeah. And I think it's important to say that even though the rewards high and the risk low, it still doesn't make it right that, that you guys were doing it in, in any sort of way. But I don't really think that's what you guys are trying to say. You're not trying to say it was, it was the right thing to do. It's just what you, it's just it, the it way just, it was. It's the way it, it was a way of life, buddy. Yeah. That you can go down there. There's lots of old timers down there. And they said, man, that's just the way we lived. You know, I mean, we need to have a lot of money, you know, and go get your meat for a bullet and gasoline. It was 20 cents a gallon. Well, hell yeah, let's go do that, you know. It just made good fiscal sense. <laughs> you know, it, was, it wasn't like we're out fighting a little private war or nothing like that, you know. Except I did get a little bit ornery at Bobby Shelton, but when I was hanging hides on the fence and sticking heads in his mailbox <laughs> and stuff like that. You know, the funny thing is, never laid eyes on that man in my life. Really? Never did. But he'd done something. I tell that story in that book about when he took, when they sprayed that stuff all over them farmers. Man, that hit me hard. And there's a man still alive down there. I'd love to have him on one of these shows. He is a hoot. And he told me that story. What Bobby Shelton said that day, man, man it just set me off. Like I said, nothing... In those days, I was kind of in a bad place, you know. I was, you know, I, I was trying to make my way. I didn't have, really have a father figure and stuff. I didn't have nobody to catch me. So I had to suck it up and get tough. And, uh, and Wayne, of course, ended up working with me. Well, we hunted together. But I mean, he was my, 
became my stepfather. That man taught me more than any one human being on this planet. And I mean, not just hunting, the work. The man could weld, he's a machinist. He could cut threads where most people couldn't drag a rope. You know, he, he, had, he had inventions, he had patents. He invented a tilted boat trailer. I mean, the guy was, he's a mechanical genius. And that's where I learned a lot from that man, working with him, you know. And uh, so I owe owed him a lot, you know. But it was, it'd been like that all his life. And I figured, well, that's just kind of what we're supposed to do here, you yeah. know. And that's what we did, you know. Didn't think about it being, you know, against the law terrible like it is now. I mean, the threat of going to prison. I mean, I can't imagine somebody go out there trying to kill a deer with that hanging over their head. I and mean, it's just not worth it. I mean, I'm, it's just not worth it, you know. Right. And uh, like I said, that's why I kind of, I like to watch you guys, uh, the puppet land hunt and right. stuff. Like I said, y'all keeping it real, man, you know. And, and that's, uh, that's uh, cause sitting in a box with a high-powered rifle, watching the feeder go off. Man, I'd rather sit in the backyard and watch the grass grow. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. I just now, and I, of course, I don't hunt with a firearm anymore at all. You know, yeah. I, I, if I ever kill another big game animal, it'd be be with a bow, or I won't do it. You know, it's just a challenge. You know, something different. You know? Right. I'm just not mad at those deer anymore. You know, <laughs> and the way it costs now. I'd rather go get me an axis deer. They eat better. You know? <laughs> they eat a lot better. That's more like elk or red deer, you know? Yeah. But, uh, Can you talk a, a little bit about um, some of the interactions you guys had with some of the actual ranch owners? I mean, I think we were talking earlier, you were saying Tom East talked to your stepdad at one point about you. And the way that you guys talk about it is so interesting because it's, it's not a— and anger, or it might be a little bit, but it, it just seems more matter of fact as in, as in you're doing this and I'd just like you to stop. It's not like I'm going to go get the cops. I'm not going to go get the Rangers. It's, it seems like people handled it like man to man. It was like a personal oh, issue it, with each other. It wasn't a law issue with the law. Yeah, it was, it, you know, when like Wayne and, and Tom East had known each other forever. And of course, Tom knew Wayne, you know, outlaw deer hunting. But when he caught me, sang me down there, and he thought, well, my God, my relationship with Wayne, I can go tell him and he'll keep that boy from going down there. You know, and it was like you're saying, more of a man to man thing. People used to just look at each other and I and ask him, you know, and then that was it. You know, like I said, you wasn't talking behind people's backs. But that particular time in my life was I was not in a good place. And I'm telling you, I, if he'd been younger, I'd have took him to Gert right there. I can remember a time when his son came in. And that man's Lord God Almighty over that thing now, Mike East. And man, that boy, he'd stand behind his dad. He never said a word. Head down like that. That, that, that. that guy was a little bit strange. Tom was just a little bit out there. You know, he different. But uh, no, it, it was more personable, you know, and it, but it's just, he just had this thing that he didn't want anybody killing deer. He just liked them, I guess. And he owned all that land, and he figured, by God, they're all mine, you know, and ain't nobody going to kill them. And, uh, but we still got a few of them. No. Yeah. <laughs> Not a lot. There's, but that country, Charlie and a lot of those boys just stay away from that country. 
because you didn't have an oak canopy to cover. But I had worked back in that ranch. You know, I'd been back in there pretty deep. I'm mean, doing work and you know, welding work and stuff like that. I had my eyes open. <laughs> you know, I was checking out where I could go in there. You know, I knew where I could go. And then I had a good buddy of mine flew me over it. And uh, man, that was when I mapped it out in my head. Then I knew where one mop was and I could get to another one and figure out how to get there without being seen. Of course, in my days, is even before Charlie like that, it was, you know, wasn't that many airplanes up and stuff. You listen, you could hear them, get hid, you know. It wasn't near as hard. And that's how come they stayed over there in that Kennedy. And he'll tell stories about going over there to Robert East. I don't think he'll jump Robert East anymore. That's Tommy's brother. Okay. And now, see, that's all together. It's all called the East Foundation. You know, those people keep their heads down. They don't, you don't see them much, you know. But um, they're still, they're, they're just as much kin to the King Ranch as, as anybody else. Yeah. Because his wife was a Clayburg. You know, I mean, it's really, that you're almost two million acres there. You know, you, you get it all together, you know. But, um, yeah, it, we just didn't. It was not thought of like it is today. Yeah. And you're right. If if people were doing it today, well, there wouldn't be the critters. <laughs> they believe me, they kill them out. You know, but the chances of getting away with it would be impossible. Because I just, it was just much more wide open. We're talking about a half a hundred years ago. That's a long time. <laughs> yeah, it is. A lot of things have changed since then. You know, I would have never thought it, but. Yeah, it has. Is that part of the is that part of the fun in the game of doing this this road hunting, this outlaw hunting is knowing that I can go shoot this deer, take it to my house and and see the guy who I just shot it off of at the grocery store while I'm getting gas. Is that part of it or, or nah. no? Cuz we you know, like I said you wouldn't see a Clayburg. Really? The only one you'd ever see is T.O. every once in a while strutting down the street, you know, he's a little bitty thing too, you know, and he got them boots on, plumb up to his knees, britches legs stuck in, he got about a two pound mustache to cut like that. And he walked around Kingsville like he was royalty and stuff, you know. And he probably figured he was gonna end up being the hook and bull. And, but in 1998, they, they sent him out. They didn't want a central Clayburg figure over the corporation. Like I said, it's, it's Wall Street now. And it's just it's just big business, you know. It's not it's not a cattle ranch anymore like that. I mean, there's cattle out there. I saw something the other day, that I, and I had to ask somebody about it. Cause I'd been down there about three months ago. I never saw a cow, never saw one. And the last trip I went down there, I seen some cows by the airport, which is on 141. The, the airport, which is the King Ranch, it was a private airport. And man, there was 15, 20 head. And I was looking at those guys, man, those, they're slick looking. And a, a little bit different red in them. They didn't look exactly, and they, man, they were muscle, looked pretty good. Well, I asked an old boy that knows about that stuff. He goes, well, what they're doing now is they're putting red Angus bulls in there and crossing them. They want to keep that colors close because that's a part of their image. You know, yeah, that their brand. Rant, their image, you know. But they know they could get those cattle to grade a little bit better if they get some Angus in them. And that's what they're doing there. You know, It's, it's kind of interesting. Yeah. They're not going to give up on it, but they're just not, it's not the moneymaker that, 
that the turf grass and the petroleum and all that stuff is and the investments they have. That's what Bob Clayberg did for years. And we was talking about those boys when they were growing up, didn't have parents. He was all over the world, literally buying land in Australia, everywhere, you know, investing money. You know, he was he was quite the businessman. He was trying to set a path for his, you know, his all his family and stuff and keep that place going. And he, he probably did more than any of them, you know. But when he passed it, 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 like I said, it just became a big battle, and they're going to fight who's going to be on top, you know. And uh, that's when the corporation just took over. And I imagine that's probably what's going on in the East. You know, they've probably got somebody running the business into that. And you, know, you get that flush of petroleum money, you know. I mean, pretty much, <laughs> it's not like you got to get up and worry about where you, what you're going to do today, you know. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I thought it was really interesting that you had a lot of like Spanish influence in the book. You actually used um, a little bit of Spanish terminology in some of the titles and some of the words in the book. Was that just kind of to pay homage to that part of of the country and, and then the Mexican and the Spanish influence? Since the 18th century, that'd been the language there. Yeah. Spanish was the language in that country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's out of respect to those people, you know? Dead gum right, you know? Of course, I, uh, you know, I speak a little Spanish. I'm pretty good, and you know, I, I've heard it all my life. But no, I, yeah, that was the language that was spoken there, and uh, so I wanted to just flavor the book a little bit like that, and the story of Uncle Zenus, you know, when he, you know, he, he saw that first drilling rig being built, mm-hmm. and that's why I, I call that star, that story what I did, Enfermo de mi estómago, I sick at my stomach. That's what that meant. It made him sick. He knew that pristine wilderness he'd been hunting all those years, gone. Just, you know, man, it just made him sick, you know. And then, yeah, it's just out of respect, those people. Bubba, that was the language was there. Right. <laughs> Guess what? It's still pretty much the language that's there. Because it's probably 95% Hispanic people down there still, you know. And, uh. And I said, I've, we didn't separate like they do in some places and stuff, you know. And I'm not a color person. Yeah. I'm, just, I'm just so done with that calling people colors. We're not crayons. You know, we're human beings. And uh, so I just, I just, I try to avoid saying that, you know. I'll refer to people of, you know, of, of, of Spanish descent like that as Hispanic or something like that. Uh, and the black folks, well, I ain't going to use a color. They're, they're of African descent. You know, I mean, uh, but we're still all human beings. Hell, I'm the biggest mixed up. What am I? I'm Irish and German and Dutch and who knows what I am. I probably couldn't even trace myself. I'm a bigger mutt than they are, you know. So, I mean, who gives me the right to? But I just wish we'd all get away from that color stuff. and Just, just be humans and treat each other like you like to be treated. You know, and it's a pretty good rule. Dang, it works every time. Yeah, <laughs> works every time. You know? So I, we've talked a lot about South Texas history. What? When did you actually get into the the road hunting and and the implementing the golden rule and all that stuff? Can you talk about your first time getting into this? Oh yeah. Well, I said it was it was 1972. I I got out of high school, went to California. Then got cut, ended up had to come back, heal up, 
And Wayne been telling me all those stories, and man, it's time for me to do this, you know. So we made a little road trip, went south of town, and I killed my first buck. And I was talking to him today about my brother-in-law and my sister, because guess what? My mama and, and my sister, now they were in the car to pick me up when I picked my buck up. My brother-in-law jumped fence with me. Family affair. Family affair. <laughs> And I had gone through some dang cactus, and I had my blue jeans just pinned to me. I mean, my sister pulled cactus out of me at night. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that was, that was the first one, you know. And uh, once I did that, man, I said, oh, I can do this, you know. But like I said, it, it was fun because I could, I could hunt with them old-timers. But, man, I wanted to go over that fence. I wanted to get on foot, you know. But Wayne had taught me how to rattle them horns. I'd, I'd listen to Zenith talk about it, you know. Man, that been, they've been, Indians been doing that for hundreds of years, you know. But see, we always hunt critters during their breeding season, you know. And, and truth be known, that's not the best time to eat them. <laughs> A fat summer buck about into August, boy, it's hard to beat one of them. They're good. They got that tallow about that thick all over them. That same way turkeys. You know, turkey hunt's not big in South Texas. We're loaded with the turkeys. They just don't do it like they do in the East. And that's a lot of fun. I've done that. I've called them birds up. I, man, that's a rush. You know, that's, I could really get addicted to that. Guess what? That's a bad time to eat turkeys, too. They've done rutted and all that fat in their breast is turned to pus and jelly. And, and shoot one in the dang fall, he'll beat a lot better. I promise you. <laughs> But that's that meat eater thing in me, you know. And, right. And we just took advantage when we had the opportunity. You know, that's, that's all it was. But during a hunting season, you know, then it was game on, you know. Okay, you ready? Let's go for another season. You know? Get out there and get with them again, you know. And we'd team up. Oh, we give those guys terrible. There might be a game warden out there like that. We did this one time. And this old boy, he, he's a serious man, too. And I, Tom, he's brought him in here. This man was a man hunter. He went a game more, and he was a man hunter. His name was Nelson Sharp. Boy, he had a lot of people scared because this guy he hunted people down. And he got down there watching Tom's. Tom hired him, and man, he kept us off that road. The old timers and they couldn't go down there. And, and one of them had the idea. I don't know if it was Wilford or which one of us. This is what we're going to do. And we went down there one day. He's sitting on the side of the road in his pickup, you know, keep an eye on the road. Three carloads of us pulled up, two in each car. We pulled up right behind him. Sat there for a second, he's looking at us like that, and then one of us sat, one of them went north, the other one went south. And when he just said, we just sat there on him. What you gonna do, Nelson? Who you gonna follow? Because one you ain't gonna follow is gonna go kill a deer. <laughs> you know? See what I mean? It was just a game. Maybe he was gonna figure out a way to do it, you know. Oh, he got mad too. I, I thought I told you about Norman. I thought it was pretty funny. I got a special order for a book, you know, a priority. Had to have it quick. And it was Evelyn Anthony in Five Years, Texas. And I called Brian. I said, Brian, is that Norman Anthony's wife? Who's a game warden down there? He said, oh, yeah, that's his wife. He said his daughter was in here just a couple days ago and bought your book. I said, dang, I mean, Norman's chased me before. But I had kind of quit before he really come on, you know, and uh, big old man. He came in there a few days later and 
And he told Brian he'd read the book. He said, yeah, that's the way it used to be. He said, it sure ain't like that now. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it was just a game back then. You know, I was just lucky. I just lucky landed in the right place at the right time. Got to do it. You know, I got it out of my system. I don't care if I ever kill another deer. Matter to me. If I do, I want to kill one on my, my family's place in Coffeyville, Kansas. I'd, I'd like to do that. Yeah. You can both kill the deer right there on the old home place. Other than that, I still got a bad want to run an arrow through a Cape Buffalo. But I want him to be wild. I don't want him to be in a dang fence pinned in there. I not, if he ain't wild, I don't want to hunt him. You know? That's what aggravates me the most. It just I started going back down at home. Of course, I was out of, out of Texas for so many years chasing rainbows as in Augusta and then South Carolina. And I told the wife and the girl, I said, I, I got to go home. I'm homesick. I'm from Texas. Got back down there to go see my mama, and the first time I went down there and I seen them ranches, them high fences, I just, I, oh, man, it just made me sick. You know, that just that ain't right. And uh, and it's costing them now. Look what's happening. They're, they're having bad cases of that chronic, you know. CWD. Yep. Or EHD. High fence. I read an article the other day. That old boy had to put down a, what do you call it? Uh, it's a $250,000 breeder buck. Because he had that, you know, chronic waste disease. You're not supposed to hem them up like that. They're wild animals. Yeah. And, and, and people pay that kind of money and a ridiculous amount. Oh, yeah, they'll pay $20,000, $30,000 for some of those pen-raised quails with the horns stowed everywhere like that. Who would want that on their wall? It's not real. It don't even look right. Besides, you drive in that high fence, hell, that buck will probably follow the truck because he knows you're going to feed him. You know? I mean, that ain't hunting, you know? That's why I said you guys that bow hunt, that hunt public land, that get out there and work at it, y'all, my hat's off to y'all, man. I mean, y'all are doing the real deal, you know? And if I was younger again, wanting to hunt again, that's exactly what I'd do. Right. I'd just go someplace where I could had all the country I wanted to go in and just get after it, you know, because I don't care about sitting in a box. Well, it's weird because I grew up in Oklahoma and I, I'd heard about high fences, but where I grew up, no one has enough money to put up a high fence if they wanted to. There's no, there'd be no money in it. No one's going to, no one's going to have money to even come pay to hunt those deer. And it's just weird because I get down here, and the first question I always hear is when someone shoots a really big deer, I always have to ask, high fence or low fence? And it's such a weird it's such a weird thing. Like, I'll see it all the time. People are like, I shot the biggest buck of my life, and I have to ask, high fence or low fence? And they're like, oh, it was on a high fence. And I'm like, okay. Uh, it's a weird question that you even have to ask. It's, a, it's just a, cultural of, it's a culture of high fence and exotics and... I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. You can do whatever you want. It's a free country. Yeah, that's that's why I feel. But it's just it's not something for I want. I wouldn't give you ten cents for it. Yeah. I just and I wouldn't put it on my wall. I'm just sorry I wouldn't. You know. But people are willing to pay it. And it's you know capitalism. It's a market driven thing. If they'll pay ten thousand, it's about ten thousand a mile for that fence. Oh, is it really? Yeah, about ten thousand dollars a mile. Yeah, it gets they get expensive. That's good flat ground. You start going up them hills and stuff, it gets higher than that, you know. But, uh, no, it, there, was, there wasn't that. 
At the King Ranch was high fenced already. What the hell they want to, there's no so much country behind them. Why would they want to jump the fence and run the road? We didn't see deer on the road much. You just didn't see them like you do up on six in central Texas and stuff. Not down there. They just turn around and go back where they came from. Yeah. You know, that's what deer do anyway when they get spooked or anything else, even when they get shot. I was teaching that to my grandson the other day. I was in, you shoot that deer, you know, because he's been taught to shoot behind the shoulder and everything. You know? I said, he's going to turn around and go right back where he came from. Why does he do that, Papa? I said, because nothing hurt him back there. He's hurt now, and he's going to go back where he knew he didn't get hurt. They're not smart. They don't reason. They just react, you know. But you, you learn animals the way they are, you know, and I've never had a problem losing a deer. I've always, I could always find them, you know. But, of course, we didn't shoot back there like that. You know, you shoot from the road, you shoot them in the neck, drop yeah. them right there because you got to be able to find them. You can't let them run off and stuff like that. That was fun. We used to do, Fred and I used to do that. That was fun. Just trying to come up with something different. we go out at night, and this was before season, so like October. And then bucks still all ganged up. We'd spotlight. Oh, there's about five of them. Oh, yeah, there they are. Well, we get somebody else driving, drop us off downwind, and we walk up. I walk up with my bow, and Fred's got a flashlight. We creep up on them deer at night like that. Don't light them. <laughs> it's just something different, you know, yeah. just a challenge. Then I, I discovered hunting on moonlit nights. Don't have to have a light. You already see. Oh, yeah. I get somebody to drop me off, and I, I go out there and couple of miles, rattle horns, my eyes get used to that light, sit there at that bow. <laughs> yeah, you can lace it. Deer actually fight at night already? They'll throw down at night? Oh, yeah, oh, they come to them amned horns, of course they will. No, yeah, they, they hear that, yeah, you does. I've seen Nell guy come to horns. Yeah, a lot of you people, your animal's curious, you know, what, what's that going on? It's so like I was telling you, that big one though, Charlie give that away. That big one, he gonna circle you, buddy. He gonna go around and get downwind to you. Oh, I don't smell right, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> they didn't get big being dumb, you know. When they, you know, they they get big like that, they seem like they get a little education. But, yeah, yeah. Fred and I did that a couple times. I thought that was kind of fun. Just something else to do, you know. Not a lot to do down there, you know. You entertain yourself, you know. Was there much bow hunting down there? Man, I was. Or is it tough bow hunting country, just in general? Well, it is, you because you're not going to be able to get a tree stand, you know, like you yeah. can use a tree climb or something, because there are no straight trunk trees down there, you know. But uh, I liked hunting on the ground, you know, and I'd back myself up the thicket where I knew I had the breeze, you know, and I knew they weren't coming this way, you know, you know, and rattle them up, you know. But, uh, I, you know, I bow hunted a little bit, and I, I imagine those guys, Charlie, probably did more than I did. Yeah. Because you know? uh, he was going in there for staying days and days at a time and just, uh, right. you know, and he'd, he'd have both. His bow and his rifle? Sure. That 708 of his. Yeah, that's... You know, that's something I, I'd, love to, I'd love to give her a plug right now when we're talking about it. you see those pictures? Yeah, these are some really cool pictures. Now, you, you, you ain't going to believe this. What's that? I had to wait till June until my artist, 
got out of middle school. That girl is 13 years old that made those drawings and the covers of that book. No, she's not. She's 13. Anastasia Gonzalez. Princess. She is so freaking talented. It's scary. Yeah. And her her mother and dad, and of course we're friends, and but her mother worked with my wife for a period of time, and that's how we got to know him. I've known Anastasia since she was a baby. And when I was I told him I was looking for somebody to illustrate it, her mother said, Well, I bet you I bet you Anastasia would do it. Well, you know, she's a little Hispanic girl, she's not of age yet, you know. So I want my wife to go over there with me, you know. Yeah. And I, I'd sit down, I'd tell her a story. And then she'd draw a picture and send it to me. You know, and it was that kind of like what you were thinking. I said, it doesn't matter. You're the artist. That's what you saw. Yeah. You heard my story and you drew it and that's perfect. And I'm putting it in the book. Yeah. Because, <laughs> you know, we didn't take pictures back then, you know. Yeah. And they just didn't. But that's... Uh, yeah, she's she's special gal. The world has not heard all they're going to hear from her yet. Yeah. She is amazing. That's pretty awesome. I mean, so how did if you guys didn't take much pictures, how did Charlie get all these old pictures? Was was that something he made sure well, to see, do? And, and and a lot of that cuz I quit in 83. Yeah. Okay, Charlie got there in 76, 77. Mm-hmm. So we only really had about 5 years together. And then I got married and I was gone, you know. And after that, he, I guess they, you know, he, they started taking cameras with us and everything. He do, took cameras back in there, but it was a lot of times he didn't, you know. He wished he had, but uh, yeah, he's he's got a bunch of them. He's got a bunch of pictures, but they always took cameras and stuff. We did, cause we didn't tell anybody what we were doing. Yeah, you know, we just keep our mouth shut. That was one of the first things Uncle Zenas told us. He said. If you want to do this, you said, just keep your mouth shut and you can do it from now on. Right. You go bragging about it, you know, and somebody's going to get after you, you know. So I just learned to keep my mouth shut. That's interesting you say that because we, we have a guy that we hunt antelope with in the panhandle of Oklahoma. He's got this ranch that's been passed down three, four, five generations uh, since, like, the land, like, poor Oklahoma was a state. And we go out there and every year or two and we'll antelope hunt with him, bow hunt, is like 85,000 acres. And he said, uh, you keep this between us, we can do this forever. And he mm-hmm. said, you tell somebody else, this stops. Mm-hmm. And I was like, huh. And every time I talk about antelope hunting, it's like, oh, how much did it cost? Like, let me, let me come hunt with you guys. And I'm like, I can't. Nobody even knows this guy's name. Mm-hmm. It's just every time, I, I can't text him. Every time I talk to him, he calls me on the phone. It's just a, it's just different. Yeah. It's just a different, different method of operation, you know. Those and he's an old dude himself, but it's kind of cool how that works. Keep uh, it to yourself. I know some fellas up in Panhandle, big landowner up there, an old man. He ran on that, worked on that ranch for many, many years, and the man that owned that ranch is always, is always about May. He'd say, "Go kill me an antelope." He wanted some fresh antelope meat, but he was gonna wait till they, and they were good to eat again, you know. And uh, they had lots of country up there. I don't know how many. That one place, three hundred sections. So it's pretty good size. Yeah, but it's pretty sparse country too. Yeah. Run about one cow to fifty acres. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they get dirt in their lungs trying to eat that grass right off the dirt. You know, right. that's that's hard country. It is. Them, them boys in a pan, they some tough ones. That wind blows. Whew. And you, you know how it is. Any given day in September or May, 
It could be 100 degrees or it could snow. And I've seen it. <laughs> It'll change just like that up there. Because people don't realize up around there, you're up on a cap. You're 4,000 feet elevation. And if it gets past them Rockies, here it comes, boy. It's, go, it's coming right down on you. And it's a long ways from where I live, you know. Yeah. A long that stuff's scary out in the panhandle of Oklahoma and Texas. Like, oh, yeah. it's it'll make you feel so small when you can see so far. Oh, yeah. It, it kind of freaks me out. My buddy Jake was like, I, I could never live out here. I'd feel just freaked out all the time. I could see so far. That's what, I, when I moved to Georgia, I, I moved in 90. Went to work out there for NutraSuite. And I mean, first couple, three months, I, I thought, well, is this because I left Texas? I'm not supposed to be out of Texas, you know. But I had this, like, feel like I was confined, you know. Well, you know what it was? Well, I couldn't see. Yeah. Yeah, right down the road, you got pine trees like this. You couldn't see the forest for the trees. The only time I felt, oh, get my breath, was when I was on a highway. I could see about a mile or two ahead of me. I finally realized that's what it was. It's just different. I was used to being able to see everywhere, you know. Right. Them good folks out there, too. I, I enjoyed the southeast. Really? Oh, yeah. Guys in Georgia, South Carolina, Alabama, Florida. Those boys, they're good boys, you know. They southern folks. They just, they, they, they good people. I enjoyed my time there, but I just, I was ready to come back. You know, I was ready to come back to Texas. Chase rainbows, trying to make a living, you know, best I could. And I've, I've had, I've been blessed somehow or another. Kid come from nothing and had some awful good jobs. And I always had a chance to go up, go yeah. up, go up. And uh, I took advantage of it. When I went to work for Selenese, you know, the only way to get in that plant's in operations. You work shift work. Yeah, I met my wife and quit in 83. She didn't have to live with a shift worker. They promoted me and gave me a daylight job. And before long, I'm in engineering. And uh, that company was real good to me. They uh, afforded me the luxury to to learn and to study. They saw something in me. And, hell, I pretty much taught myself mechanical engineering. Right. I've had an engineering background my whole life. I taught myself vibration analysis, rotor dynamics. Acoustical pulsation dampening. <laughs> it was math. You know, it was math. I got it figured, you know. But, uh, yeah. Boy, there was a bunch of outlaws at that plant. <laughs> that Bishop plant right there. Oh, man, they were all doing it, you know. Like I said, in those days, it was just, it's just a way of life, you know. But that had to change because Dave's going to have to make some money, and that's how they made that money. And that's how they make the money now is off those deer hunts, you know. Paying that, I think they said it was. This was probably 15, 16 years ago that they were paying ten dollars an acre uh, for, uh, you know, trespass fee. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you know, oh, uh, Jerry Jones owned the Cowboys. He got hundred thousand acres. That's a million bucks. That's chump change to him. Right. I don't mean nothing to him. Yeah, a million bucks. Yeah, I lease that place. That's who gets to hunt them deer. It's not, it's not us hunters. The sad thing is, you know, we're, we are hunter-gatherers. I mean, that's the way we came into this earth, you know. Actually, when we developed and we went into agriculture, that's when we went down. Hell, our diets went to hell. Yeah. <laughs> they just went south. 
You know, what do you grow? Oh, we grow rice. Oh, you're lucky you get three bowls of rice a day, huh? When boy, you was out there picking mushrooms and you was catching critters to eat and everything else, berries, everything growing. Much better, you know, diet. Yeah. yeah. We did this to ourselves. <laughs> Have you heard about the carnivore diet? Mm-mm. There's this diet that's it's kind of it was kind of a fad, but it's getting really popular now. It's it's basically going back and eating like mostly meat is is what the diet is. It doesn't have to just be red meat. It can be chicken or turkey or whatever fish. Um, but people are seeing tremendous health benefits from eating this carnivore diet. It's basically just taking out all the processed crap, all the sugars, all those sorts of things, and just going back to meat and crap that grows out of the earth, just greens and. I've been eating that way for like a month now. I'm getting shredded doing this diet. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you think about it, it's like, well, this is how we've always eaten. This is how we should eat. That's how we should eat. Yeah. Now, the American diet's so modified in the processed food and everything, but it's like, what what a better diet than a wild game diet and just throw some greens in there. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's crazy how complicated we've made all this. Exactly. I was talking about my mama. Going to be 100 this year. Yeah. They, she went through the Great Depression. And she'll tell you right now, we had it better than anybody. Because we had a farm. We could grow our vegetables, and they raised chickens and turkeys and pigs. Now, she went five years, they didn't eat any beef. Because that's the only way Grandpa could make any money was to sell a sell beef, beef cow yeah. to somebody that had some money. So they didn't eat beef. But these people all lived in their 90s and stuff, you know? Right. Because they weren't eating processed food. And, you know, if they, they would put it in a, you know, a jar, they'd put it in there. They didn't put no preservatives in it. They cooked it and they put it in themselves. and have all those chemicals and stuff in we got in our, in our diets now. So that makes a lot of sense. You're getting back to being more like, you know, what we were originally designed to do. Mm-hmm. I agree. There's one story in the book that was really interesting to me, and it's the one um, – I think it was when you were writing the book, you're talking to some old man, you're trying to get this information out of him about his, how he used to hunt, um, outlaw hunting. And he just, he just whispered to you a number. Do you remember that? Can you give us a little sneak peek? And and I talked to my buddy Jake about this, who hadn't read the book. And he was like, there's no, there's no way that's true. Can you talk about that a little bit? Uh, Now you talk about the one, the gun, the 2520, how many was killed with it? Or how about that one man, how many he had killed per in a single season? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's David. And baby, I tried. And this man, as far as I know, he's still alive. He's in very, very bad shape. He's in his 80s. I wanted to come over there and, and record him and, you know, because he could tell stories from now on. But that's what he said. And I was talking to him. His short-term memory was, he was getting real bad. But I was talking to him on the phone. Hell, he'd forget who I was. And he'd get him going again. And then it just got real quiet. And he said, 56. I said, 56 what? That's the most I killed in one year. 56 deer. (laughs) But they were getting after it, you know. And those guys, they did not sell that meat. I don't know any any of those guys ever did that. They killed them deer. They either ate them or they gave that meat to somebody that needed it, you know. I never heard of anybody selling meat. I, I wouldn't put up with it, you know. That's just, that's wrong, you know. But yeah, that's that was nothing for them to kill 35, 40 a year, you know? Cuz that's when they were getting after it. I never killed that many. I probably the 
first couple of years, Ellis kept me pretty busy. Yeah. That old man, I don't know how many deer I drug off that bitch for him. But I imagine we were probably killing 18, 20 a year, you know. So in five years, I'd probably probably got close to killing 100, you know. You personally? No, I mean. With everyone. Yeah, many of the guys I was hunting, right? I, I didn't drop the hell. hell. Ellis wouldn't let me shoot. That dead gun guy, you know. Uh, but, uh, yeah, like I said he had a bloodlust. But uh, I, I didn't I didn't drag for him just a couple years, then I was off. Me and Wayne go hunting. It wasn't. By the time Charlie got there, I was I was with Fred then, and uh, and then that was the that was the combo. They didn't have a Chinaman's chance in hell to catch Fred and I. Was that? Because he was the best there was. He's a wheel man. That's what we used to call a driver. And he's got more senses than you do. He's, to me, that's the scariest position. He's got a sixth sense. And I have seen him save our butt before. I, I write a story about it, the neck hair sticking straight out in his back. I'd seen him. I went, what's right? Something ain't right. Something ain't right. First curve, here comes game warden. It's like he just sensed the thing. And when I teamed up with him, of course, you know, he was a wheel man. I was over the fence. In those days, there was no way they were going to catch me on foot. <laughs> there just was no way. You know, unless they could run like a deer and jump like a gazelle, I'd lose them. And, I mean, I, you know, I'd go through them quick. So I felt safe with him. And uh, we just had it down to a science. And then the technology broke. I shot a little old YouTube thing about it. Uh, Fred called me and said, man, we, I need some meat. He had three big old boys, man. They eat a hind quarter one setting, you know. Right. So I need some meat. I said, come on, let's go. And he jumped in a truck with him, and we went out 285, and I wasn't paying no attention, you know. And I said, well, let's just make, a, make the road, make sure it's clear, and then we'll hide the gun. We'd hide the gun before you start throwing a spotlight. Because you get caught with a spotlight and a gun, then you're dead meat. Put two and two together. Yeah. You know, you can't have a gun and a light where deer are known to roam. So we hide the gun, you know, and then we get ready to spotlight. We pull over there, waiting for a little clearing traffic, you know. And I was looking at it, man, that's a fancy CB you got there, Fred. He said, ain't no CB. I said, what the hell is that? He said, that's a police scanner. I said, what are you talking about? You know, he said, oh, no, we can hear him. How do you do that? He said, and turn on. He turned that thing on. He knew a guy that knew a guy that worked at Radio Shack and knew every number, every crystal, forever. We had four sheriff departments, county sheriff departments. We had King Ranch Security. We had game wardens. We had a highway patrol. We could listen to them. Well, we're sitting, that was the first night I was with him in that thing. He was sitting in that thing. that's going off, and about that time, man, I heard it. They're heading west on 141. Well, that's 20 miles north of us, you know. We got to get some sheriffs coming up from south and north. Cut them off. We'll catch them, you know, when they, 141, 281. I said, Fred. He goes, yep, they got them. And then I heard some else come on. Sound like Butch Thompson. Well, he was head of King Ranch Security. Yeah, we're behind you. Pretty soon, here comes game work. Game work. Yeah, we're, we're heading west too. And I'm sitting there with a friend. I said, 
hell, Fred, this is cheating. You know, I mean, good grief. We know exactly where they're at. He just over there just chuckled like this. He just I said, Dad, this ain't right, Fred. Dad, you know, this ain't fair. But that's also, when I saw that, I saw it's all going to change. You know, I kind of look into the future a little bit. I was going, no, we're going to have to quit doing this stuff. Because it ain't going to be long. They're going to ha- everybody will have the same thing, you know. But uh, it was, I don't know, it was that same season or something. We were riding down the road and game would pull us over because we were probably sitting there looking something too long. He pulled up beside us and he walked up there and he saw that scanner. Oh, man, that guy got mad. I mean, he's just red in the face, you know. And he asked Fred, you know, well, Chris, he got all of them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just. Just kind of dig it, in. Just dig it in a little bit. But it was a game with them guys down. Even I remember Zenus, not Zenus, but uh, Ellis Mayfield, Wayne Town story, or Harvey Shane. Game ordinary. He was a good guy. Everybody liked him. Now he tried to catch you. But it's kind of hard when there's four or five of them and just one of you. you know? And one day <laughs> he pulled them over. And it was, you know, getting close to being the right time to be hunting on the evening, you know. And he walked over there, and he said, you boys out here doing it again. They just wouldn't even talk to him, you know. He said, what time is it? Five o'clock. Yeah, I'm off duty. He opened the back door, got in the car, and said, give me a beer. He said, if I can't catch you, I'll just keep you from killing him. I'll sit here and drink your beer. <laughs> Harvey got to be two good friends with the hunters, and they finally had to move him out. Oh, my <laughs> <You know? laughs> But I mean, I said it was it was a game, you know. It, it wasn't serious like it is now, because it didn't have nothing to do with money. You know, it was just a way of life. It was just food. Now, if you got somebody going willing to pay twenty, thirty thousand dollars to kill a dang deer, holy mackerel! I no wonder they're watching them like they do. You know. Yeah. And, uh, I'm glad I'm done with it. You know. But I had a I had I had a decade of doing stuff that man, nobody else ever gonna get to do. You know, it, it was uh, just lucky. Like I've told you, I said I'm a lucky guy. I mean, things happen to me in my life. <laughs> Doors get opened up and I go through and and when it was when when that was happening, that's when I met my bride, you know. And I kinda had to make a decision, you know. I said, Well, I keep on. I got done just like Charlie, just kept on and going, you know. I said, no, it's time to stop this stuff. I said, that's a good woman there. If you're going to ever have a family, that's the kind of woman you want to be your mother your children. Right. And I said, I don't think I'm going to let this one get away. You know? <laughs> yeah. And I was lucky enough. She said yes. And I just stopped dead still. Just like when I lost weight, I just plant my peasant foot and just go the other way. And that's what I did. You know, it just, uh, it was time, you know? And uh, I feel very fortunate to have lived in that era and got to see that and got to do that. And I know it's, you know, now it's, boy, it's the worst thing in the world. But back then it wasn't. It was just a damn game and the way we way we got our meat, you know. It was a lot of fun. But, uh, nah, yeah, it's, it's a time going past and don't ever, I don't want anybody ever to go out there and try to do that stuff now. Man, that's just, it ain't worth it. Not even even a little bit. I met some guys here. It was the last season. I was trying to gig some flounder. 
And I come out, this young guy, and, and they're flounder guides. They have a real fancy boat and stuff. And I just start shooting breeze with them or something, because hell, I'll talk to a stranger anytime, you know. It turned out these guys read Charlie's book. Really? Yeah. He said, have you ever seen this book? And I said, I said, I got a handwritten copy of it. It's probably 15 years old. You know the guy? I said, oh, yeah. I said, matter of fact, I'm in that story right there. I ain't the runaway truck or what's it called? Bit of luck on a nail guy. I, he's got a long name for that story. I just, on mine, I call it the, was it runaway truck revisited? Yeah. No, it was antelope trip was revisited. But uh, I just kind of added, added into it. He couldn't believe that I knew him. He said, man, that guy's famous. You know? I said, he's character. I'll tell you that. <laughs> But, the, but he was telling me that they were doing that. He said they, they, they were going in night vision goggles and, and, uh, and infrared scopes, cutting them damn fence, high fences, you know, cutting and crawling in, going in and kill a deer and come out. I just said, boys, man. I mean, I'm, I'm not the kind of guy going to tell another man what to do. I was raised in that era when you didn't do that, you know. But I said, boys, man, you run a a risk it ain't worth man it just ain't worth it you know but uh, ah we don't do it much but when we think we can get away with it and you're gambling because you, you're ruining your life it'll follow you the rest of your life you know your felony would you know it just ain't worth it man yeah <laughs> it's crazy how much it's changed there's a there was a Oh, freaking world-class deer shot around up where I live. I think pretty close to Coffeeville. They weren't sure if it was over the state line uh, in Kansas or Oklahoma. And we all saw the deer, and uh, there it, it was some weird situation where he said he'd shot it with his bow, and he ended up shooting it with a muzzleloader or something during at night or something. And all of a sudden, you just see this rack of the deer on the ODWC Facebook page and website and all of a sudden, his photos he has with the deer are being deleted off his Facebook and stuff. And it's just like, I think they took his truck. I think they fined him 20 something thousand dollars. I mean, took the deer. The deer belongs to the state now. All that over a deer. There's not a big enough deer that for me. And if, you'd, if you'd seen what Fred and I used to do, because he had them three boys. We'd go kill a deer, maybe two. Go back to his house, hang them up. Skin them out, saw the horns off. And like I said, we didn't kill little ones. We killed some good deer. You know where they went? Where's that? The horn pile right next to the burn barrel on the north side of the property. Let the rats eat them. How many do you need to hang your hats on? I, I, I never had a house big enough to put all the deer in there I killed. Neither Fred. We just sawed them off, throwed them over there. And believe me, people go out there and Come get them, you know. People put them on a plaque. I've heard stories from taxidermists going through those piles. Get out to resell them. But, you know, 23, 24-inch buck, you know, maybe 10, 12 points. Just throw that thing over there. Like I said in the book, Ernesto Barrera, he taught me, he says, you can boil them for two days. They won't make good soup. <laughs> they just won't make good soup, you know. How many deer do you think you, you got in that decade personally? Uh, me actually dropping a hammer yeah. on them? Oh, I don't know. I Dozens? Didn't, didn't get oh more than that, yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It didn't count. I, I, 
after the first couple of years and I was dragging, pretty much after that, I was doing all the shooting. I was a pretty good shot. And Wayne said, hey, you should shoot him. You, know, you don't miss, you know. I don't know. <laughs> 150, maybe. Really? Oh, yeah. I'd probably 150. I figured that in one side, I probably drug 200 off that, you know, all together. You've drug, it's interesting to me that you guys, where, where did the golden rule come from? Because oh, Charlie Uncle, doesn't that, operate by that rule. No, no, that, that was Uncle Zenus. That was Uncle Zenus, and that's what he taught Wayne. And, it, you know, no, that was, God put that animal there for us to eat. He didn't put that animal there for you to kill it and feed it to a damn coyote. You get the meat out, or don't kill it. You know, I mean, I could hear that man saying that right now. You know, it just that's just the way it was, you know. And when Charlie and I met, of course, I knew what he was doing. But like I said, back in those days, a man didn't tell another man what he's supposed to be doing or not doing. You know, you just kept that to yourself. Yeah. It's changed a lot. You know, I said, it's not the world. It's people. People's change, you know. But you just didn't do that, you know. And uh, you kept your kept your mouth shut and you just went on about your business you know but when those that bunch up there that i call them the bishop bandits and that's what charlie will call them and then of course charlie and his buddy george moore and i mean those guys they got serious bubba and they was hunting the best place they could get into too you know but they jumped a few of them they just hadn't been in there like when robert east charlie tells you, i ain't never go back in there robert east again and what they used to hunt, they you hear them talk about the Piloncia, and that's out west. You know, it's not even on my map. It's further out west towards river. Well, the Piloncia is now called the Shell Harrison. And dude, I don't imagine Fort Knox is guarded as well as that place is. Really? Oh, it's unbelievable, man. My nephew goes out there with a crane doing work, the oil field stuff. He's tell a story. He said, uh, driver, I and mean, one of his crane operators were switching shifts. And he'd go through all that rigmarole. There's sign. If you have a cigarette lighter, they catch you with a cigarette lighter, a match, or anything, you're off for life. No tobacco product, no nothing. You don't, nothing, you're off for life. And they got whacking huts out there. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's the security. And uh, this old boy driving into the rig, he had a heart attack. And died. Drove off the road in the brush till the truck stopped. His car stopped. And my nephew said it took him a month to get that car out of there. All the red flipping tape and stuff. But Shell paid the Harrisons a billion dollars for that 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 new kind of oil they're finding out there. You know. And uh, yeah, it's a place you need to leave alone. Because they're deer there. Oh my gosh, it's like the Briscoe. 650,000 acres. Heck, goes across eight counties. <laughs> it's a big place, man. You know, I mean, some of them are huge out there. Those deer, you don't, they're not as many, but they're bigger. Why, why is it that you think South Texas is such a mecca for deer hunting? Just for not only in numbers, but buck to doe ratio, antler size. It's just, what, what are the factors that make it just such a special place? Well, it, it is special, but it's really not. If you think, if you think about, well, look at the dang deer over the deer in Kansas are bigger than the deer in Texas. Further you go north, they're bigger. Now you want to see some heavy deer? Look at those deer come out of Saskatchewan. Look at the mass on them things. 
The Texas whitetail is a smaller animal. <laughs> so his horns, when they get out there, 21, 22, boy, they look like there's something because it's a big, you know, difference. Right. And uh, I think that's a lot of it. But uh, the fact they have such huge acreages and there's the numbers can get so high, you know, and that's why the buck-doe ratio, of course, is, is is good and when you they'll come to horns and stuff where they don't in other parts i've tried to rattle in other parts of the country where there wasn't very much like in south carolina I mean, you better off blowing a grunt you know then you would be rattling horns you know but yeah that it's just cause all those great big huge ranches and there's just all that unknown out there and vast vast acreages and that's, that's what the lure is you know i, I would think but after you stomped across it a few times, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you don't really want to. Uh, like I said, I'm, I'm done with it, you know. I, I just, it was fun back then, but it's not worth going to prison for or jeopardizing my family. And, and it's not something I want my grandsons to pick up, you know. I tell them, you know, I've told them the truth. I don't lie to them kids, you know. But... You know, they've got chances to hunt in places, and, you know, and, and they've all both killed them a deer now, you know, and they're tickled, they're fired up now, you know, and, and that's great. And that's that natural desire for us to, you know, to hunt, and we were just built into us. But I wanted to do it legally, you know. I, I didn't have anybody tell me no. Matter of fact, the person above me was going, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> so... Yeah, it was, it was a whole different thing. I wouldn't take my kids to do it, that's for sure. And I'd, I'd get on to them if I ever heard them doing that. And I just, that's a different time. And it was just a different time. And I just, fortunate enough to, that little section of time, you think about my career and, and Charlie's, I mean, I mean, hell, he went on for a long time, you know. Yeah. Man, I, it, he, he got caught, what, 15 years after I quit. I mean, I was done with it. I knew it was getting it was getting bad, you know. And and seeing they got that Operation Game Thief, we went through that, seeing what happened then. And, well, LBA crooked letter, crooked letter. You know who he is, don't you? No, who are you referring? Cap High Fence. Okay. Lee Bass, richest man in Texas, stuff right there. Well, 1986, he became the commissioner of Parks and Wildlife. Now, who's governor? Oh, George, but why, George? Why, fellow billionaire like me, you're doing a great job, that Parks and Recreation. Just keep that job. He was there 12 years. High fences just jumped up everywhere. Look at all the property he has. Hell, he owns Barrier Island. Really? How does he do that? You know where Port Aransas is? In the yeah. beach, okay? And there's a set of jetties. Well, on the north side of the jetties, that's St. Joe's Island. Guess what? He owns half of it. I used to paddle across on my surfboard and go surfing over there. I was trespassing. Didn't even know it. Yeah. Of course, I'm a little bit, little bit older than Lee. Yeah, he's, I think he's 65. His story's in there. It's kind of cute. It's, you probably get going pretty good, you know. Someday when you're three years old and somebody gave you, what, 1959? Him and his three brothers got $2.8 million apiece. That'll get you like, started. Yeah, that's like then that was like fifty million. And he's he was in three corner diapers. Yeah, he's a philanthropist. 
But he was there running that thing when all these high fences were going up and doing all that and changing these laws and getting them worse and worse and worse. Well, you check now. He is the commissioner emeritus. I guess that means forever, huh? I guess. But they got a new commissioner now, the guy that owns Bucky's. Oh, really? That's what I heard. I think he's the new Parks and Wildlife Commissioner. I wish him well. You know, like I said, there's things they could do. You know, I'd just like to see him have some places for people to go where they could go. They could hunt and stuff. Hey, you can't even hardly fish anymore. You know, unless you got a boat, you, you, everything's bought up. You can't you have private property, you know. And I just it wasn't like that when I was a kid, you know. And I feel sorry for younger people today because they didn't get to see what I got to see when it was just wide open, you know. Yeah, the Texas system's kind of weird. Like, coming from Oklahoma, obviously there's some areas they'll shut down for controlled hunts and stuff, mm-hmm. like for a small period of time. But mm-hmm. any other any other time, it's open to bow only or rifle hunting or whatever. You come to Texas in Austin, I, I drew like a three-hour three circle around Austin. And there was there wasn't a single place I could hunt that I couldn't that I had to I had to draw out for, and I I wasn't a single place I could go bow hunt. And everyone is asking me, everyone I live, you know, why why do you drive up to Oklahoma? Why do you why do you do all this? And I'm like, well, I can't afford a lease. I can't pay it five thousand dollars. They tell me I can shoot one buck and one doe. Mm-hmm. Okay, then I'm gonna put a thousand dollars in corn and all these other sort of things. Okay, so I, I can't get a lease, and there ain't a place within three hours for me to hunt. What's stopping me from driving two more hours and hunt where I want to? Exactly. Where I can hunt whatever I want. Mm-hmm. And people say, oh, well, Texas has almost a million. Over in West Texas, they do. It's something I'm never going to touch. That's an eight-hour drive for me. Yeah. And it's a, it's just kind of a junky system, in my opinion. It, it really stinks for the public land hunter. There's not much there for you. There is none. I'm telling you, the few places they've got, I've, I've even tried it. Uh I remember back in the 70s, uh, we'd go to the Aransas Wildlife Refuge. And Bubba, they got mosquitoes there as big as B-52s, buddy. And the only way you can get away from them is to get up on a ladder about 10 foot off the ground, and they'll leave you alone. And there's a lot of deer there, but they're so hid until right at dark, and they'll go right out to the point right at the bayfront where the wind's blowing in, and you sit there and quiver, shake them mosquitoes off of them. I said, I don't want any venison that bad. I ain't going back in that damn place. And the very next day, they shut the whole thing down. Because here come the whooping cranes. You know, them dumb ones that won't sit on their own eggs, so they got to put them under sandhill cranes. (laughs) And we're going to spend millions to kind of keep them alive. It's another one of those, you know, 25 species a day vanishes off this earth. It's pretty arrogant of us to think we're going to keep that bird alive. Regardless. God, come on, man. You know. Yeah, they run, they shut everybody down. Because here come the birds early. There's not much of anything. And I, besides, in the East Texas over there, that in the big thicket. But I wouldn't go over there with a rifle. There ain't no way. Now, I love him Texas boys from East Texas, but them are rednecks. Yeah. Oh, they'll take sound shots. Well, I heard it. I yeah. shot twice over there, you know. <laughs> no, I ain't going in that pine thicket. Not me. Uh-uh. I'd say right in the middle of King Ranch. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I just had to just have to let it go. 
That's why things I've always wanted to go to Africa. But guess what? You're hunting high fences there too. Is that right? Well, of course it is. A blue wildebeest and a black wildebeest do not live in the same country. One does mountains, one does plains. You kill them both on the same piece of property, well, guess what? They were put there. You know, I mean, how are you going to get all those critters in one place? Most of those places, they're, they're high fence too, in some degree or another, you know. And so I've lost interest in that, you know. I'd, I'd rather go up north somewhere, you know, Alaska, British Columbia, Saskatchewan, you know, hunt something truly wild and just something, you know, we got a challenge again, you know. It's, to me, that was the fun, was the challenge, you know. Of course, it wasn't hard to kill them deer down on King Ranch, yeah. so many of them, you know, but, but, but to go in, beat some horns, pick you out a good one, get him, bone him out, get out there with him, yeah, it's just kind of put a little bounce in your step. Oh, I won that again, you know. <laughs> but it was not ill content, feel ill will towards them, nothing. It was just a way of life. It really was. It was just a way of life. That's the way we fed each other. And that, not a lot to do down there. <laughs> not much else. <laughs> there ain't much else, man. There's, there ain't much. We'd figure out something to do. Go sit out there at the dipping vat. Everybody bring six pack of beer, sit out there to dip vat, talk. Mm-hmm. But usually we come in and do something. We get ourselves liquored up, then we go do something stupid, you know. Yeah. So that wasn't a good idea. Chase jackrabbits on motorcycles or four wheelers, you know. They're coyotes, that's fun too. Get two guys on a motorcycle and chase coyotes out in the plowed field. It takes two of them. Guy's pretty good on a bike. That coyote, he's quick, you know. Yeah. But you can run them down until they can't go anymore. We caught deer like that. There's an old boy. He's got a place there that we, years ago, that's what we were doing. We was catching deer out there on the pea fields. And we tie them up, take them to his place, turn them loose. He's got 160-class deer at his place now. And and like my nephew and them boys that were combining, see, they combine, you know, by July. Well, that's when they're falling. You run along through that grain, and you see a doe jump up, above it, you're fixing to run over a fawn. Because that fawn's laying right there. You know, because that's what he's, he knows to do. And they get out there and they get him and catch him. And now so man, he had three daughters. She, they bottle feed them things, get them up and turn them loose. They got deer all over their place now. And they're all just caught, picked up around different places like that. It's just something to do. You know? Yeah. I guess now they probably get you in trouble for that too. But you know, that was always fun. We can't sell wild game. Is it is a citizen, right? Right. Yeah. You I can't mean, sell that's the against law. Yeah. Then why is it a landowner can sell that deer to for somebody to shoot? And there's not a season on it either, is there? I mean, I'm just I'm just saying, what's one? I don't understand it. If you're a landowner, then you don't have to buy by the laws. You can't sell meat. I guess you can. See, that was all that 1983 stuff when they did that and they transferred ownership. Yeah. It's, it's it was all about money. It's just all about money, trying to keep those places together. Because, you, know? you know, most of that country down there is natural gas. You know, there's not a lot of oil, and there's not as much money in it as there is. Uh... But believe me, and you got as much as they did, that's plenty. They had yeah. plenty of money, you know. But uh, it's, um, 
It's just growed up. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. That country out west of Premont Fowl out there now is so growed up. All those little places are gone. People can't make a living on them anymore. Brush growed up. Those places there never was any deer, they're loaded with them now. They're all over the place out there. I can't believe it. I took a drive out there. took my mom out for a ride one day. I said, I just want to see what the country looks like. It's been so many years, you know, so I looked at it. God, dang, couldn't could even recognize it growed up so much, you know. But I also remember back in the 70s, too, when they'd, the ranch would chain that brush, you know. You got two D9s, the biggest chain you ever saw in your life stretched in between them, and they're just dragging that brush down right during fawn season. You don't think they kill some deer? I'm sure. Yeah, they didn't give a damn about them damn deer. They're trying to open up some pasture land. You know, I mean, like I said, they work for them. <laughs> they work for the ranch. They work for us. Yeah. That's a that that's another point. You think about that. Texas is ninety five percent private. Okay. Now, how is Texas Parks and Wildlife funded? Well, they're funded by Taxation, our licenses, our fishing, everything sporting goods got a tax goes to it, goes to Parks Wildlife. Right. Right? And what is their job? To protect the landowner's deer? Why the hell ain't the landowner paying for the Texas Parks and Wildlife? Why am I paying for it? They ain't got no skin in the game. They just got the money. See what I mean? Operation Game Thief. They changed the whole narrative. And just said, well, these are the bad guys over here. These are the bad guys. Well, come on. Where are you on Sunday morning? You know? You go to church on Sunday morning? <laughs> we ain't bad people. It's just a way, it was a way of life back then. It was just completely different than it is now. It's fun talking about it to somebody like you yeah. or, or, you know, or, or anybody, you know, on, these, on, the, on a podcast like that. And, and a, but it's just, it's gone. I mean, it ain't never going to be like that again. And please don't hate me for it. I just wanted to share what little bit of fun I had, you know, because I'm done. I mean, I'm done. But it was, that was, writing that book was a whole bunch of fun. Because, you know, that, here come that pandemic, right? And I retired. My wife's still working. Oh, wasn't long she had work from home. Well, her job... It's like a reality TV show, <laughs> and I can't watch it, okay? I had to get out of the house. I got me a little wood shop. That's my fun. I like to build furniture and stuff out of wood. Well, this lockdown kept going on. I finally ran out of wood. <laughs> so what the hell am I going to do now? You know? <laughs> so I took that laptop out there at that shop. I sat under my planner, and I started writing. And everybody's been telling me, you need to write a book. You need to tell them stories. So I've been, it's like Charlie, Charlie said, I ain't read your book. I said, why the hell would you, Charlie? You've heard every dad gum story in there. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like me reading his book. You yeah. know? I've heard them over and over again, you know? Right. It's fun to be able to share them with other people. And it's not like, you know, we're trying to brag or nothing. It just, there was a different time. And it was a lot different. And it's changed, and I just know how it changed and why it did, and uh, just tried to share that a little bit. I don't have any animosity towards anybody or anything, and don't expect anything from anybody. You know, I just, I just want to tell a story and tell the truth. You yeah. Know? 
and truth how that how that all came about you know and uh especially that country down there because that's kind of that's where yeah that's where my you know my my soul heart is i i just i like those people they they simple good people they just but they're just about all gone you know it's just drying up down there you know and yeah. those little towns like Premont and Fowl, they used to be a bustling little old place. Well, they've already bypassed Fowl Furious, you know. And now the bypass is coming around Premont now. And those two places, you know, after the old timers go and stuff, it just, it's going to be gone. Right. It's just dried up, blow away. But they were good little communities back then and good people. And how they got that many characters in one place, I don't know. It's like they put out a sign. If you got a sense of humor, come you move here. Because <laughs> we had some characters down there. You get yeah. with those old timers we talk about, those old days, we used to call them pachangas. And you go out there to somebody's place and they build a fire and put a grill down, throw some meat and drink some beer and start telling stories. Yeah. And that got them old timers. There's a guy named Austin Brown and old man Disbro. I, I seen him one night. They, they had us all on the ground holding sides, just laughing. It's just hilarious. The guys had more character than any five people I ever met in my life, you know. It's just tough country. I guess it just kind of made it out of them, you know. Right. Yeah. But it was it a was good time. It's nothing like it now. But that's what I wanted to do is just, you know, like I said, I wanted, I wanted to share that with people who's interested because it was a different time. But I want people to tell them, too, do not go out there and try to do this. That's so many years ago. And, man, you can get yourself in some trouble that you ain't never going to get out of. Right. And it is not worth it, you know. If you want to hunt and you can't afford a lease or something like that, well, save your dollars up and go make you a trip every other year someplace. You know, and go someplace where you can really hunt and get, you know, and, and get, you know, have a good time and, yeah. and not run a risk of putting yourself behind eight ball for the rest of your life. Just ain't worth it. If, like I said, if, if I get a chance to go again, that's, I'm gonna go to Coffeeville. That's where I'm gonna go. up there. I, I, I don't wanna go that, that, that farm up there and, and try to take one on the old, the old lane place. I, ne I never seen a deer there in my life. Of course, I hadn't been there since I was 12 either. You know, but uh, I talked to my cousin in Florida and he's got half of it. I'm sure he'd let me go. Have to put up with his sister, though. <laughs> they don't even get along. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's fun. So, can you talk a little bit about? Um, I believe it's your daughter, and in the back of the book, where you talk about a little bit of the proceeds mm -hmm. going to. Can you talk about that just for yeah, a little that's, bit? Yeah, that's that's very important to me, and I appreciate you doing that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, my uh, my niece Haley is nonverbal autistic. She's forty, almost forty-one years old now, and that's when that you know it came to our family. You know, it was, and she lives with my sister and my mama, and she's older than my both my girls. So both my girls, you know, grew up seeing that. Well, obviously, it did something. If it's a good Lord or what, but, it's, but it took actually by storm. That's she dedicated her life to it. She loves those kids, 
and works with them every day. And uh, and I, you know, I I I, I want to try to help her keep that school alive because she has an Oasis Academy and, and for kids, you know, with special needs. And then her foundation, and she did it all by herself. You know, she just this is her dream and this is her passion. And guess what? I'm her daddy, and I'm gonna help her. You know. And but we have a dream together. We'd like to see happen, and it hits home again. You see, my sister's seventy-seven years old. You know, and what's going to happen to those kids? Those kids with special needs—they're not kids anymore. They're grown people. Right. But they outlive their caregiver. You know what I mean? Ashley and I would love to start a place, a true oasis, for people like that. You know, that uh, they've outlived their their caregivers. Somebody's still got to take care of them. And just giving them to the state ain't, ain't, ain't you know, it's not what I want to see done, you know. I know enough about autism that I know even with my niece being unable to communicate, right? she's still in there. Right. Oh, I, I, she took too many times I've seen her you can cut her eye at me and stuff, you know, and I go, yeah, you dead. I know they're there. You know, it's just they can't communicate. And uh, I said, she gave me a, an office there to, and I use that, you know, to mail my books and stuff out because I do it all myself. But I'm going to, I'm gonna donate to that that and keep that thing as live as, as long as we can, you know, because that's her dream and I I think it's a good thing to do. Yeah. You know. The, that's a that's a cruel disease. It's right it's you know, it's it's like Alzheimer's almost to you know old people to just steal their mind from them. Well, how about your whole life you can't communicate? Yeah, you imagine that's just it's terrible. We did. Uh, there's a picture in the back in that little on that page. It was it yeah, 2019? We did a mission. We went to Ghana, Africa. Yeah, we. She did. Yeah, she planned all that. She met this guy online. He's a daggum same like her. His name's Patrick Akufu, and he has a nonprofit. It's all he does is give, give, goes all over that country and helps, you know. And we went over there to go to their school to help them, you know. There's 150 kids in that compound. Half of them had Down syndrome. They weren't autistic. They just put them all together. They've never been clinically diagnosed. They don't know what, what's what, you know. But I tell you what, those weeks we spent over there, that changed my life a lot. It just, if, if that don't soften you up, nothing will. You know, and those people up there. So, of all the countries I've been in, and I've been in quite a few, Ghana is special. I'm telling you, I don't care if you're in a city, a community, a village. Those people, they think they're blessed, and they're going to bless you too. Oh, yeah. Now, they all got a cell phone. <laughs> but, I mean, they live... Their, their culture and their faith is one and the same. They're beautiful people. Good grief. They're so... Just so given and so warm and everything. 
the girls wanted to get uh, African dresses made because there was two other women with us. And uh, so we go to the market and they pick out their stuff. And I'm always security seat, you know. I, I lost the fear the first day I was there. Yeah. I, these people were so kind. And I'm in this market and they're looking at that loud material. And I see this young fellow bouncing down the street. And I mean, he had happiness in every step, boy. I'd say he's about 15 years old. And just smiling and waving at everybody. And, and then I saw that damn t-shirt. And you want to see his t-shirt? What's that? Always think of the woman first. I said, hell, we're not in America. <laughs> I, I know that right now. Yeah. You know? But yeah, but that's always think of the woman. Isn't that beautiful? When we flew out and we went to London for a couple of days, the first shirt I saw a guy had on, Chairman Anti-Social Social Club. I said, yeah, we're back home again. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I wanted to go to Africa all my life. I went, never killed a thing. Didn't bother me a bit, you know. <laughs> Didn't really see anything kill. Yeah. But it was a... It was a lot of fun, and I learned a lot. You know, we, when my daughter decided she was going to do that, she was taking two mothers of children. Uh, these two mothers have special needs kids. It's just three women going to Ghana together. My wife and I were sitting there looking at each other, and said, my wife, this dog ain't going to hunt. <laughs> she said, you got a passport. You're going. <laughs> so I went as chief of security, but like I said, First day I was there, I just lost that fear. People are beautiful people there, just very sweet. I mean, he took us all around, but yeah, that was that was a great thing. And so that's like I said, that's one of the things with the book I want to do. I want to, you know, I'd like to raise as much money as I could to help her foundation. Yeah. But long term, you know, I it's going to take some big money, people. You know, to, to buy into that too, but that's what we need—the funds. It's tough enough to find people that'll do that work. I mean, that little girl of mine gets up every day and just can't wait to get there. You know, I mean, she's got something special in her heart. You know? Right. And then uh, I'm around there every day and stuff, but I just, there's a limit to how much of it I can take. I, it, it hurts me. I, I feel sympathetic, and you don't want to do that to those kids. You know, you. You want to interact with them stuff so they get used to knowing what, what that's all about, you know. Yeah. And I've, I've seen her make some significant differences in some of those kids' lives. And so I know it can be done. And just finding the right people that'll do that, that'll do that kind of work. And it's just getting more and more of them all the time. You think about, like I said, a home for, for people that uh, special needs that outlive their caregivers. That number gets bigger every day. Mm-hmm. We're some billionaires that wake up in the morning trying to make another billion. I wish they'd just give some of that to somebody that wanted to do something good for some folks. Wouldn't that be great? be awesome. Sure would. That's what I'd like to see happen. But that and my boy, Charlie, I want to validate him. Now, so many people said, man, the way that guy did that, don't you idea? <laughs> Oh, yeah, he did. <laughs> that 27-day hunt? I said, buddy, I've been in that country 
all over it. I got a feeling them boys that took down Osama bin Laden, one of them would rung the bell. And he said, I'm going out of here. I ain't staying 27 days. I don't think SEAL Team 6 could have hung with him. Because he'd just he'd go like a wild man. You know, he'd just get going, 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 going. Living on nothing but meat, whatever you, you know. Yeah. Yeah, he, he was something else, man. He, he is something else. Just hope he gets over his, over, over his sickness, his illness, you know. Give him some of his life back because he's been sick for a long, long time. Yeah. But like I said, the boy's given me more than I've ever given him. So I'll always be in his corner, you know. Yeah, and I didn't agree with, you know, the way he hunted and what he did, but I couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. But we didn't judge one another. You know what I'm saying? Back yeah. in those days, you just, you know, by God, you just didn't do that kind of stuff, you know. We had so much in common that we did do, you know. Because I loved his work. I loved taxidermy. I could hang out there all day long, you know. Right. <laughs> and we'd play a little golf together, or we'd go fishing. Well, we tore them redfish up on that in the flat, so ooh, we had a lot of fun together. Shoot birds, he'd get to bragging on me. Then. Hey, Pat, you're the best way to shot in the whole world. <laughs> I'm pretty good, but I ain't that good. <laughs> but I, he, he got to, he got to hunt with my dog, and I had the best dog there ever was. Oh, Scoot was something else, man. I remember we was hunting one day, and Charlie, I, you know, because you don't shoot, you can eat it. We was walking out there going to the fence line, wait for the birds to start flying. Here comes that alert. Pow! You're gonna eat that. Okay. <laughs> he picked it, breast it, put it in his back. Took about 15 more steps and woodpecker. Pow! Well, you're eating that woodpecker too. It's okay. <laughs> he saw me, he's like, heart right now. He just pulled down and ate it. I go, okay. You <laughs> can't turn him, you know? Yeah. <laughs> we got out there shooting birds and we had. Uh, four birds come over top of us, and it was just a perfect setup. And I mean, Charlie and I, boom, 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 four, two doubles. And old Scooter, he'd pick a bird up, come back, put my hand. I didn't say nothing. He went and got all four of those birds. And Charlie and I, damn. <laughs> I said, yeah, that's a good dog right there, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> But I lived with that dang dog. I mean, I, he was my best friend, you know, and he could speak two languages. I used to mess with him all the time. Had a good buddy of mine, Danny Navar, Hispanic fellow. He worked at Sally's, and the guy's got a hunt lease. Shoot birds. They called me one day. Hey, man, take a bite. You come up and bring your dogs. Sure, Danny, I'll come. So I loaded a couple of my, my labs up, took them out there. I think Rip was down there at the tank or something. I told got to us, get out, clean yourself out. And he'd get out and go poop and stuff and everything. So they get yourself down there and help the Rip. And Danny was in the truck with me, you know, and he goes, that's him, isn't it? And I said, yeah, that's Scooter. Man, that's a beautiful dog. I said, he's a pretty dog. I wanted to pet him. I said, don't do that, Danny. He said, why not? I said, the dog don't like Mexicans. What? I said, I'm, just, I'm sorry, Danny. And Danny, oh, you just messed me. He started scooting, you know, growling like that. And I said, Scoot, come over here, boy. Give me a kiss. And he looked me on the face. I said, this is a good Mexican right here. He's a good friend of mine. <laughs> and I want him to let you pet him now. So you go over there and let him pet you. And old Danny's petting it. I said, 
You son of a bitch. I can't believe you teach that dog. I said, that dog's smart. I teach him anything. That's awesome. He was, he was a very good dog. And I'll never have another one. I never will. I, I've, I've, my wife's seen me cry twice in my life. And I cried worse over that dog than I did my dad. And I said, that's it. I ain't never going to have another dad gum dog get that attached to again. You know, he died for his time, got run over. And, uh, and I haven't, I haven't ever had nothing since. And I couldn't, I couldn't stand it now. Because back in those days, I mean, we bird hunt every day during the season. I mean, we literally, we hunted birds every day. Yeah. It was a social event. Back then we had CBs, and you'd get, you know, some farmer or some old field guy, we're going to shoot bird today. Where are they at? Somebody's like, there's a lot of them over here or some over here. And somebody finally said, well, let's pick it. Let's take this. We're all going there. And you pull out there by 4 o'clock, there'll be 30 trucks. And I guarantee you, Two-thirds of them never even got the shotgun out. They're just drinking beer and paria, cook some meat, just shooting a breeze. It's a social event. Yeah. That just meant I could kill twice as many birds. Because <laughs> I, I give them their limits, you know. But that was an everyday affair. Now you, can, you don't do that. It costs money to hunt. Yes. Everywhere. Everywhere, you know. And it was just, it was a social event, you know. We had a lot of fun. But it's... It, like I said, people's changing. They are. Yeah, it's not the world. It's it's people. <laughs> so for people that uh, really enjoyed the stories in the podcast, where can they pick up your book? Where can they connect with you? Mm-hmm. Well, at the website, it's the same as the book. It's beforethestoriesarelost.com. And you can order right there on the website. And like I said, I got one retail outlet in the Wild Horse Desert. And that's between Foul Furious and Premont. And that's my cousin Brian Hornsby's at the Texas Grub Wagon. And he sold a lot of books there too. <laughs> and, but I wanted it to be available for those locals there. You know, I, I did. I just wanted them to have that book because it's, it's their story. It's, it's, it, you know, they know that stuff is there is true. They know all about that stuff, the way it was back then, the ones that are still alive. It's hard for younger folks like yourself that... Man, all this occurred right before you were even born, you know. And it was it's just changed a bunch. But uh, they're good folks down there. There's just not as many of them. It's places drying up and blowing away. But Brian, he's hell of a cook. And if you're going down 281 and you get hungry, you don't stop at Texas Grub Wagon, you just screwed up. I tell you real quick about him, now this is funny. When he went to cooking, he had a job on drilling room. Yeah, offshore. You know, he's cooked on the rig. They stay pretty busy. And those old boys are pretty hard out there too. He's working his butt off one afternoon cooking, you know. And this guy comes in. What are you cooking, Dave? It's got steak and shrimp, sir. He said, make mine medium rare. Yes, sir. So he he didn't even turn around and look at the fellow. Well he got the meal fixed and he slid down there to him. Guy went deep. About halfway through that meal, he stopped. He said, Son, you're too damn good a cook to be cooking for these rednecks and these, you know, roughnecks out here. Yeah. How'd you like to have a job on my hunt lease? To give you suburban, we'll pay you this, and you can cook for us. Brian goes, That's not a hell of a deal. 
You know who that man was? Who's that? <laughs> Dick Cheney. Really? He was still with Halliburton before he got into, you know, politics with George Bush. Yeah. That's who got him off a of drill That's pretty awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and he's cooked for some of the bigger places down there, you know. He's just an awesome cook and just a good a person you ever want to meet. And, of course, his daddy was my buddy. And that's him right there, isn't it? Is it? Yeah, that's him right there. That's Brian right there when he was 15 years old. We killed that hell guy together. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, he's a, he's a, he's a great man. Yeah. My, my nephews were all friends with him and stuff. So, you know. And every time I go down there now, of course, I see Mom. And, he, of course, he's selling some books for me and stuff, too. You know. But I wanted it to be good for both of us, you know. So, you know. Somebody want look up in the book and they're going there. Well, let's maybe they eat something, you know, <laughs> or they eat something. Say, hey, you know, buy a book. I got your book. You know, it'd just be good for each other. Yeah. And I, I put a little sign up there and everything. And I told him, I said, Brian, day it comes a pain, but tell me we'll take it down, you know. But, but until then, we, you know, we're just gonna keep going on there. But all the locals come there and got the book, and, you know. And that's then that that's that's kind of made my heart sing too, you know. Especially when he told me about Pete. You know, Pete Hornsby going there and here's sandwich and cops for cops that book. And yeah, I know good well he's out there giving somebody, you know. And that made me feel real good. You know? Yeah. Because they're family to me. I mean, I, was, I married into it. My mother married into it. But that, I think of them like family. I always have, you know. And, uh, they always treated me like I was one of them. But yeah, just go to the website, www.beforethestoriesalost.com. And, uh, I'll get, I'll, get, I'll get a book to you. Cool. Well, I appreciate it, Pat. Thank I, you for coming on. I very much appreciate you for, for offering. And, uh, maybe we can get back someday and get Charlie in here together. And yeah. Matt. Woo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-